Hello and welcome to Beastly Theories. I'm your host, Andy McGrath. Now today we have Scott Mardis. Scott's been an active field investigator of the Lake Champlain Monster since 1992. He's a former sustaining member of the now defunct International Society of Cryptozoology and a former volunteer worker in the vertebrate paleontology department of the Philadelphia Academy of Natural Sciences. He's also co-authored a scientific abstract about the Lake Champlain hydrophone sounds, the Acoustical Society of America, and he's the founder of the online research group, the Zombie Plesiosaur Society. Currently lives in Bradenton, Florida. Scott, how are you? Lovely to have you on the show. I'm good, Andy. Thank you for having me. So the first thing I really want to know, Scott, is, is how is the polar vortex affecting you down there in Florida? Well, it's been in the 40s at night. Not too bad. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I guess it never really hits you guys hard. 60s during the day, so it's not bad. I'm way down near Tampa Bay, I mean, midway down Florida, so we normally have very mild winters. That sounds that sounds absolutely wonderful, like a dream. It's about, uh, I work in Celsius, so I'd say it's about minus three here at the moment. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, actually. Well, I lived in Vermont for 18 years. So oh, there you go. I know what <laughs> Escape from the snow, the retirement years. Now, Scott, you've been searching for Champ, uh, the late monster of Lake Champlain, uh, since 1992. So why don't you give us a, a little background on, on how you came to be enamored with this particular lake monster. How did well, you get there? My first love was Nessie. I was 11 years old when the Rhines pictures from 1975, the underwater picture of the neck oh, yeah. of the head, made headlines in the supposed close-up of the head. And the combination of that and seeing Jaws at the movie really made me a sea monster nut. I didn't really get uh, serious about cryptozoology until the very early 1990s. And then I started planning to move to Vermont. My initial idea was to actually move to Scotland. Wow. But that just money-wise and, and all that, it just was not practical. But Moving from Philadelphia to Vermont was doable, so I did it. I made an initial trip up there while I was still living in Philadelphia. My first trip to Lake Champlain was November of 1992, right before the presidential election. I didn't actually move up there until April of 1994. Uh -huh. I lived there for 18 years, and then I wound up getting married, and my wife hates the cold. Uh-huh. So we kind of came to a Mexi Mexican standoff that she lets me go back to Lake Champlain once a year during the summer. So I, I don't have to completely give up my champ research. But sure. It's a nice, sure. a nice compromise. And, you, I mean, you were there for 18 years. And I'm guessing you lived very close to the lake at that time. Yep. I can um, to the lake in like 30 minutes. And, and which area were... Uh, and it's a very big area, Lake Champlain. Which area were, were you in? Very close to Burlington. Okay. A place called Winooski, which is essentially suburban Burlington. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I think I might have passed through there uh, this, um, this September, actually. Probably. Probably. Now, my next question really uh, actually impacts upon that. So... Um, similarly to Nessie and, and other lake monsters, many many women like yourself over the years, they've devoted their lives to 
to the search for champ. They've endured financial and personal hardships and in many cases, you know, failing in those endeavours, which is the most likely outcome in, in most like monster research, or falling victim to the pitfalls of depression and, and life on hold issues, this yeah. type of pursuit uh, compromises, a lot of people end up crashing out. So how do you keep yourself fresh for the hunt and have you mastered a healthy work-life balance? Absolutely. I mean, I'm very happily married. I have an animal, a cat. You sell a dog, and she passed away, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's, the, the hunt for champ is not the end-all and be-all of who I am. It's a big part uh -huh. of it. And I continue, I, I hope to continue the search. Um, as you probably are aware, my research partner, William Dergenis, recently passed. Mm -hmm from pancreatic cancer. Yes, and that was if, very sad. If you've seen the uh, In Search of Champ, or On the Trail of Champ mini-series, you'll know that in 2017, we had a big boat with 3D side-scan sonar, and at that point was probably the best prepared I've ever been, technology-wise, mm -hmm. to pursue this animal and be successful at it. Well, due to Will's untimely death and his medical bills, he had to sacrifice his boat and all that technology. So I'm kind of having to start all over again. Uh -huh. Hoping, you know, over the, it may not be overnight, but I'm hoping over the course of the next few years to get back to that place with sure. that technology. So I'm kind of um, having to reboot here, you know. I mean, that was one of the things I was going to ask you, Ben, actually, um, having worked with uh, William all this, this time um, in very close partnership, you know, what was, uh, what were, were his contributions t to this field and, and what was the legacy he left behind? Now, clearly in your life, that's um, a friendship and uh, oh. a, a well-equipped research partner that's now missing, but for the community itself, for the, the genre, what do you think he contributed to this, well, this field of cryptozoology? Will was not only involved in the hunt for Champ, he was primarily known for his work hunting for Bigfoot. He actually <laughs> saw a Bigfoot back in 1995. Wow. And he's held in high regard in the Bigfoot field. He had a cabin up in Virginia, not too far from where he had his Bigfoot sighting. Mm -hmm. Had everything rigged up with um, trail cams to try to capture an image of Bigfoot. He had engineered a lot of our own uh, cameras, which he called "I Gotcha," which is the same sort of same sort of time lapse camera that he was using. On land for Bigfoot, he adapted for underwater, kind of like uh, in containers like the cameras that Bob Rines was using back in the 70s, these yellow. Uh -huh. We were using the same kind of camera that he had engineered at Lake Champlain underwater, uh, attached to an anchor and a buoy. So we would go to fairly deep places like 30, 40, 50 feet deep and anchor these cameras on the bottom. They were set to film upwards using the light 
of the sun to catch the silhouette of something swimming over the top. And uh, the best luck we had with the underwater camera was back in 2014, we got an image of a fish swimming over the top of the camera. Fantastic. Yeah, it was time-lapse. It you know, could go all day. And if something had happened to swim over the top of it, we would have gotten an image of it at Champ or whatever. Um, yeah, I just think that's, that's, a really, um, that's a really clever way to go about it because it's not being activated by, by anything passing it. And it, perhaps it's a lot uh, less obtrusive to the animals, you know, the, in the natural environment there. Yeah. Um, we had in, the cameras with us in 2017, but unfortunately, oh, yes. the water visibility that year was really bad, and we, we got no usable images from that trip. But we did get the sonar hit, plesiosaur-shaped sonar hit, which is on the documentary. I'm sure you saw that. Yeah, I, I did see it. I reviewed that documentary, actually, and I really, really enjoyed it, and I actually yeah. saw it before I visited the areas. It was a great... Um, it was a great guide for me, visiting and, and seeing, you know, in, in real life terms, what you guys see all the time and, and what you filmed in the documentary. What I was staggered by, actually, is the absolute, the sheer size of the lake. I think yeah. it was 114, 115 miles roughly, long, something like that. Uh, roughly 120 miles long. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And it's several miles wide in places. Yeah, I, I think it's 11 miles wide. Wow. I mean, when you go to Loch Ness, you see it's such a different environment, 25 miles, more or less, and a mile but and a Loch half. Loch Ness is like twice the depth. Oh, it's huge. I mean, it's it's like a vertical wall yes. of water. You know, it's just staggering the depth of it. Well, the the, the, the uh, deepest part of Champlain? 400 feet deep. Okay. Near uh, Split Rock. And I believe Loch Ness is at least... 750 feet deep, maybe a little deeper. Yeah, well, it's, I think it's disputed, but yeah, it's, a, it's supposed to be around about that, I that think, depth. I think, but I, think, I think everybody accepts 750. Yeah, I mean, realistically, even if you took 150 feet off that, you're still talking about a very deep yeah. body of water. I, I was there very recently, actually. It was, it was a very, very good time. Now, um, these days, it's very unpopular to assert that lake monsters are plesiosaurs or some form of their descendants. Now, I, I know that you might be a little more on the plesiosaur side of, of thinking. Well, I mean, uh, what yeah. evidence do you think there may be for um, uh, a plesiosaur-like well, creature at Lake Champlain? Well, um, two pieces of video evidence very much resemble a plesiosaur. That's Sandra Manzi's. 1977 photograph, uh -huh. which resembles something along the lines of a plesiosaur looking over its back. Mm -hmm. Then there's Peter Bodet's video from 2005, which appears to show some kind of object resembling a plesiosaur's head and neck, mm -hmm. and possibly a flipper, which comes out in the later part of the video. I'm mm -hmm. sure you've seen that video as well. I have, yes, yep. yes I have. And probably beyond those two, the most uh, impressive is the uh, Peter Olson, I mean, uh, Eric Olson video from 2009, uh -huh. which shows a kind of a turtleish looking creature. I see. I see. So it, looks and, like it and, has a somewhat shorter neck, 
than the things you see in the Bodette uh, and Nancy photograph. But some turtle, some plesiosaurs were kind of turtle-like and had shorter necks. So, okay. you know, I would think that one of those three or possibly two of those three videos gives us a general rough esti estimate of what the morphology of these animals are, if they exist. I believe they exist, but I can't prove it yet. So I'm, I'm speaking lawyer speak here. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I was just wondering, do the witness uh, reports also corroborate that plesiosaur-like description? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. For the uh, most part, of the, what kind of percentage would you... Yes. yes. But, you know, people can argue that the idea that these monsters might be plesiosaurs has been floating around since the 1830s. So we could say that it's possible that preconceptions on the ideas of people uh -huh. may be coloring their remembrance of what they think they saw. You know, you can't go back in a time machine and verify an eyewitness. Sure, sure. But you've got pieces of photographic evidence from Lake Champlain, and especially from Loch Ness, that seem to corroborate the eyewitness testimony. I think, I now, think you're right about that, you, personally. You can go back and look at a video or a photograph and study it again and again and again. Would you? You cannot do that with somebody's verbal description from an eyewitness. Mm. Yeah. In 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 regards to the eyewitnesses, however, uh, what types of monster imposters do you think they could be seeing at Lake Champlain if they're making a mistake? If they're making errors, do you get, do you ever get seals at Lake Champlain? Yes. Is there any way for Absolutely. seals to get inside? Well, they, there were plenty of seals getting in the lake back in the 1800s. Now, uh -huh. there are a system of dams and canals on both rivers that connect Lake Champlain to the ocean. But uh -huh. I think it was in 2016, a seal tried to get into Champlain-Hudson Canal, which has nine locks. So it had entered the Hudson River and was almost going to get into one of the canal locks. So theoretically, if a seal was lucky, it could get into Lake Champlain now. Okay. But it would have a hard time okay. doing that and remaining I mean, in the process. But seals do get into Lake Champlain now. They do. They yeah. certainly do. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's <coughs> not a, it's not a, um, <coughs> it's not a direct route. There are locks and dams and, and things like that in the way as well. Canals well, I primarily. Point out, though, I would point out that usually when this happens, they are immediately recognized as a seal. Yes, so they are. <laughs> you can balance it both ways, you know. I mean, if you got yeah. a quick glimpse of it and didn't realize what it was, theoretically you could mistake it for a, quote, monster. But yeah. most of the time people see it, they say, oh, that's a seal. You know, they're not saying, oh, that's the thing about seals, Scott, is they're very conspicuous, yep. aren't they? Mm -hmm. And um, they don't really keep themselves hidden. I, I remember observing some seals in St. Ives in Cornwall. I observed them swimming beneath the surface out in the, um, out in the bay there. was about 200 feet away. I didn't realize there were seals there when I first got there. But immediately, even beneath the water, it was clear to me that they were seals. Yeah. 
I had no problem identifying, oh, look, there's a seal beneath the waves swimming below that surfer. I never thought for a moment it was something else or something unusual. Um, and I think well, that's I think the point with these. The plane that we have is a resident population of lake sturgeons, which can uh -huh. get feet long. And okay. I'm, I'm almost certain that a certain subset of marginal champ sightings are probably sightings of large lake sturgeons. Uh -huh. uh, would that be back sightings in particular? What's or, that? Or, would that be back sightings in particular, or if somebody probably. claims to see a flipper most of likely, some kind? Most likely, yes. Mm -hmm. That would make sense to me, for sure. Yeah. Um, now, on this subject, actually, while we're talking about this subject, um, a lot of people within the community complain that Lake Monster Research seems to be overrun with skeptics or non-believers. What are your thoughts on the added value of skeptical research? And do you think there's a line that skeptics can cross where they change from objective skepticism to philosophical skepticism? Yeah, well, there's, there's a subset of skeptical thought that is called radical skepticism. Uh -huh. Which is like, you know, it's so far into the skeptical idea that, that it's like it begins with the basic premise that this thing cannot exist. Uh -huh. Therefore, any arguments that there could be something to it are invalid just from the, from the get-go. It's defined I'm, by a worldview. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I'm, I don't support that brand of skepticism. Uh -huh. But... In the absence yet of a, a type specimen to prove that these animals exist, I think healthy skepticism mm -hmm. is valid. One thing I've said before to people is that whether these animals exist or not, no, anything that anybody says about it is not going to change that. Yes. No matter how much I want to believe there's something there, if it doesn't exist, all the things the arguments that I could make to say it exists, it's not going to make it exist. If yeah, it no, I, exists, I agree with that. All the negative arguments in the world are not going to make it disappear. So I try to keep that idea in perspective. So, you know, and, and a lot of people, you know, believers and skeptics alike get upset with each other because they can't convince the other person of of the view that they're convinced of. You know, so I try to just be philosophical about it. Well, I noticed that you walk that line very, very well, actually. And I, I've always um, admired that. The reason is, I think, talking about worldviews, is that oftentimes you have worldview believers and worldview skeptics. And what we actually need is not believers, but researchers and objective skeptics. Yeah, and I mean, that's where they help each other and work together to, I know, learned, to solve you know, whatever is a particular piece of evidence. I try to learn everything that anybody's ever said about it. Mm -hmm. And though I may have my opinion about what this particular piece of evidence represents, yeah. I try to present the other arguments and just put it all on the table and say, look, this is what everybody has said about this. Make up your own mind. Uh -huh. That doesn't mean I don't have an opinion about it. It just means I believe in presenting all the arguments. You know, I mean, some of the arguments 
The skeptical arguments, they go to such lengths to explain it away. Some of the skeptical arguments yeah. are apparently more ridiculous than the idea that it's just an animal that we don't know yeah. about. You know? Well, I mean, this is um, this is something I remember Roland referred to that, Roland Watson referred to that as the um, my theory sucks the least theory. Mm. You know, um, uh. Sure, perhaps there isn't a, you know, a 20-foot-long eel that can raise its neck out of the water living in Loch Ness. That beats the theory that there's a plesiosaur living from the time of the dinosaurs, still alive and, and um, you know, thriving you know, in our modern locks and lakes. Kind of hypothetical animals mm. that have been hypothesized to explain, you know, you, they've come up with eels that look like plesiosaurs, seals that look like plesiosaurs, turtles that look like plesiosaurs, mm. long-necked whales, all kinds of, of things. No, no, that's fine. It's possible. But why make up an animal when you've already got one that we know that was real, that really existed? Exactly. That fits probably 75% of the description. And this animal is supposed to have been extinct for 65 million years if it has undergone a, another, a complete, you know, further evolution uh -huh. past the 65 million years, it may have changed a little bit. So, Just talking about that, that evolution and adaptation and, and things we know from fossils and, and things we infer uh, that we know, or um, I always say um, exclusions based upon assumptions. People say that they're not seen enough and there would be an air-breathing animal. Now, I really liked your research into the butt breathing turtle. Yeah. Now, well, tell us about that and how that could correspond to uh, maybe plesiosaurs as well or, or lake monsters yeah. of some kind. Well, there's a thing called cloacal bursae respiration that is used yeah. by certain turtles, freshwater turtles in Australia. Particularly this one, the Fitzroy River turtle, they believe gets 70% of its oxygen directly from the water using this method and essentially how it works is that reptiles <clears throat> their butt as you would call it uh -huh. they do all of their business giving birth sex and all this out of one orifice called a cloaca right uh -huh. so this in these turtles this cloaca is lined with a sac filled with blood vessels. So what they're doing, they're drawing water with oxygen in, in it into their cloaca. And these blood vessels that line this sac are absorbing the oxygen from the water like a fish scale. And it's going from the water into these blood veins into the blood system and getting into their you know, the lungs and heart and all that, okay. the vascular system. So they're essentially using their cloaca as a fish scale. Okay. So they, they absorb the oxygen from the water. Yeah, exactly. And they believe uh -huh. the Fitzroy River turtle is getting 70% of its oxygen through this method. So it's essentially breathing most of the time when it's underwater like a fish. Wow. And it's oxygen directly from the water. Okay, now, that is an established fact. Uh -huh. There's a website about paleontology called Paleos, and they had an entry on elasmosaurs. 
the super long neck plesiosaurs that had necks that were two-thirds the length of their body. And they were speculating, they were saying, well, if an elasmosaur was sitting on the bottom, because of that long neck, it might have a hard time getting oxygen from its head all the way down that long neck to the smaller body. I uh, see, yes. So they were suggesting that, and we already know that reptiles can absorb a certain amount of oxygen directly through their skin, which mammals can't do. So they were suggesting in this article on elasmosaurs that perhaps elasmosaurs were exploiting, you know, underwater forms of, of respiration, and then they mentioned the cloacal possibility too. So that's and, uh, as close as we've got to taking this idea from the turtles. Wow. Where did it establish and saying that plesiosaurs might have been able to do this too. Now, anybody can look at the basic body configuration of a plesiosaur and see how similar it is to the body of a turtle. Uh -huh. The idea is not that far-fetched. Now, the cloaca sac, like the turtle has, would be a soft tissue thing that wouldn't necessarily be preserved on a fossil. Yeah, However, yeah, sure. In recent years, they have found soft tissue parts of certain marine reptiles, fossils. They found a kidney on a mosasaur. They found an eye. They found skin impressions and blubber from a plesiosaur in Mexico called Mauritiosaurus. Uh-huh. Now they know they had blubber. And there was wow. a article about the ichthyosaur with blubber, too. I read that recent one, yes. So this is amazing so if they, they had blubber. Know. Maybe someday we will find evidence mm -hmm. of cloacal birthday respiration fossilized as soft tissue. But it's, that you know, amazing. But in the meantime, this, this actually gives a plausible theory as to why these creatures aren't seen very often. Yeah, because you've got the, you've got the conundrum of an animal that seems to behave like a fish and stay under the water most of the time, longer than you would assume an air-breathing vertebrate would be able to. Yet, mm. when it comes to the surface, most fish don't have necks. It's got a morphology like a tetrapod. Uh -huh. So this is the only feasible answer I've been able to come up to get around that problem. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I realize how unlikely it sounds, but it is possible, you know. Well, I mean, wasn't it very unlikely for the turtle to, to have that same uh, ability exactly. before we discovered it? So yeah. I think we find animals with extraordinary abilities all well, yeah. the time, don't we? Uh, I always talk to people about um, potential octopus. answer that is scientific. It sounds it sounds it to me. It, I mean, with a creature we don't readily know still exists or does or does not still exist. Yeah. Anything's possible and I think we can only search for the most plausible yeah. uh, theory um, out there as to why these things happen. But it would seem to me, and I'm, I'm wondering if you, you've studied this particular aspect of Lake Monster Law, if they're rarely seen in all of the locales they're supposed to inhabit, and if that's the case, you know, maybe this becomes more uh, more of a promising theory if in every locale where there's 
let's say regular, or there have been many lake monster sightings, but rare sightings, yeah. they all exhibit this perhaps the same ability. Now, my theory for a long time was that it was the nocturnal nature um, of the animal. Maybe it could stay down for a couple of hours. Maybe the neck was long enough to get to the surface and, and take in a bit of air unseen. Um, well, and if you course, took what you're talking about and combined it with this cloacal act, yeah, yeah. that makes it even more plausible. Yeah, it sounds, I don't it sounds think like they it's can stay underwater forever, but I think they can stay underwater a long time, uh -huh. probably longer than we assume. How long can this turtle stay underwater without having to come to the surface? Do they know that? I've, I've, I've had several different uh, things in the literature. One guy said three weeks, which I find a little hard to believe. But yeah, it's yeah. a bit. If you'll hang up a minute, I have the files right here. I just have to find them here on the computer. No, that's, yeah. that's okay. We, I mean, we can we can add that later. I'll, I'll add that detail in for, for anybody who's interested, yeah. uh, which is fine. But it's um, hours, a long time, you know, at the very yeah, least. I mean, even if you're talking 24 hours, that's enough. Yeah, yeah. That's enough. And you would and, have to think if you scaled it up to a much larger animal, I mean, the... the the Fitzroy River turtle is about the size of an average turtle. You blew this up for an animal, say, 20, 25 feet long, would, would in theory have a much bigger cloaca and would be able to stay down longer and exploit it better than a smaller animal. I now, guess. I don't know. Let's talk about other uh, possible uh, abilities that this animal has as well. Now, you were you wrote that paper, the abstract about the Lake Champlain hydrophone sounds, the Acoustical Society of America. Yeah. Uh, I'm assuming it was with Elizabeth Mugenthaler, is that right? Yeah. Yes. Now, um, that was a very interesting theory, and, and a lot of people have um, experimented with that recently at Lake Champlain as well, and with varying results. Um, what's your personal take on this biosonar or, or whatever this creature might actually have? Do you believe it's a possibility? Do you think there's been evidence that has been discovered uh, of this um well the sounds uh, from 2000, the sounds from 2003 remain unexplained uh -huh. sounds that have been promoted by other people in recent years i believe are the sounds of known fish in the lake uh -huh. particularly the freshwater drum and some of the chirping sounds are probably made by lake sturgeon uh -huh. However, the sounds that Elizabeth Muggenfaller recorded in 2003 remain unidentified. That does not mean that they are made by chance. They just remain sure. unidentified. Now, were they, um, were they, uh, weren't they, sorry for interrupting me, but weren't they um, very similar sounding to cetacean? Um, yes. So, uh, killer whales. Yep, exactly. The, the, uh -huh. the, the whale sounds that they resemble the most and I showed this in the documentary, uh, are the sounds of a humpback whale. They call these oh. megaquits. That's what they resemble the most. And the interesting thing is that the humpback whale is a baleen whale, and it doesn't have a sonar melon like a normal toothed whale that uses echolocation does, yet it makes sounds like Odontoceti uh, echolocation. And the significance of that is, is it means that this humpback whale is making these sounds without a sonar melon, which means that an animal without a sonar melon 
would be capable of making these sounds. Now, wow. what they know about the hearing of plesiosaurs, they don't think that plesiosaurs could hear high-frequency sounds, which are normally what standard echolocation is, is high-frequency sounds. They don't think that plesiosaurs could hear sounds above uh, 10, 10 kilohertz. Uh -huh. But, you know, 65 million years ago, things may have been different than they are now. We just don't know. But, but basically, uh -huh. what they know about the plesiosaurs from 65 million years ago, their, their hearing was not that sophisticated. They didn't have sonar melons. So they don't think that plesiosaurs from 65 million years ago used echolocation. Uh -huh. Based uh -huh. on what we know about standard reptiles, it's an unlikely idea. However, we don't know that these sounds are echolocation. Uh -huh. They may just be sounds they use to communicate with each other. That's what I was thinking. Right. Maybe they're just communicating. Yeah, we just don't know. Because they sound like echolocation doesn't mean that's what they are. The only way to, to resolve this matter is to figure out a way to definitely connect this anomalous sound with one of these animals. Uh -huh. The closest that anybody has got is Liz von Muggenthaler claimed that in 2003, when they were getting the sounds, they also had a sonar blip of something that they estimated to be 15 feet long underneath the boat while they were getting the, the sounds. So that's the you know what, what depth that was? Not off the top of my head. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I do have a I mean, picture of the sonar graph that they took on the boat. But it oh, was wow. underneath the boat. She estimated it to be about 15 feet long. So, I mean, that's, I, that's really, you know, it's really something else. Now, that actually brings me to my next question for you, Scott, actually. Now, you've been visiting the lake for some time. Uh, it would seem that you're one of the few full-time researchers left looking for CHAMP at the moment. If money was no object, what kind of exp expedition do you think you would bring uh, to the lake, and um, how would you go about implementing it? You know, equipment, manpower, time scale. Well, you know, ideally, the, the thing to do would be have the setup like we had in 2017—a big boat that's big enough to sleep on and stay out on the, the lake overnight. The best resolution. 3D side scan sonar we could use, top of the line hydrophones, and the other thing that I've been working on for the last few years is trying to find underwater caves in the lake. Uh -huh. I've been exploring two caves <clears throat> that are above water now. But during the time of the Champlain Sea, which was the marine prehistoric predecessor of modern day Lake Champlain, the water level was 200 feet higher. So theoretically, these caves that are above ground now, I know of three of them that I've found so far, could have bones left over from something that lived in the Champlain Sea in them. Oh. And the reason I say that is they know for a fact that today, in certain underwater caves, <clears throat> sea turtles have been found, dead ones, the bones. Yes. In, sea in, in these underwater caves, and they, they don't know whether these 
turtles go in them to die on purpose, or whether they accidentally swim into them and can't figure out how to get their way back out and and suffocate or what. And it also happens with manatees too. So what I'm hoping to do is see if I can find underwater caves that are still underwater there, and it's possible to find the bones of a recently dead champ, or maybe one from the Champlain Sea. You know, wow. Either way, this would qualify as a type specimen. And, and how would you implement that? What equipment and, and manpower well, would you need to make that happen? You would need to use a sonar to look for anomalies in the side of the lake that could potentially be caves. And if, if they are, either send down an ROV, if that's possible, into the cave, or a diver uh -huh. physically investigate. Now, we're not talking about extensive cave systems here. The type of caves you see at Lake Champlain are carved out. They're fairly shallow. They're carved out by wave action. Mm -hmm. And these sorts of caves only occur where there are deposits of sedimentary rock. So you're not going to find these kind of caves everywhere around the Rim of Lake Champlain. You're only going to find them in places with sedimentary rock. Now, uh -huh. I have a geologic map of the lake that shows where the different sedimentary deposits are around the rim of the lake. Wow. So I'm concentrating on those places as likely places to look for on our caves. So you've got to find that group of places to look which makes it doable. And in, in a place that's so, in a place as large as Champlain, so for remains of the animal, you've got the cave systems and the sedimentary rock that you would like yep. to check out. Yep. How do you, I mean, how do you go about searching the rest of the lake when you're there? It's so big. And do you just focus on areas where there's been a lot of sightings or do you, well, do you have a pattern of where you think the creatures go or, or what depth no, of water they're seen in? Nobody has seen them enough to, to say that. I mean, I know people yeah. have made bold claims over the years. Yeah. The only way you can know this stuff is by direct observation of these animals uh -huh. on a regular basis. Is the only way you could accurately be able to make such claims. Yeah. You know? Yeah. These people, other people are making these claims, not me. You know. Uh -huh. oh, I understand that. I and understand. I don't know. The other the other way to go about this to get physical evidence is to use biopsy darts. We had biopsy darts with us in 2017. I've got to get some new ones. Okay. We still had the old ones, but it's on my shopping list. So I'm how does that work? How, how would you, well, uh, how would the biopsy dart Boyd work? Boyd Mackle, I'm sure who, you know who that is. Yes, yes, absolutely. Professor Boyd Mackle invented these things to hunt for Nessie, to try to get a tissue sample on Nessie. Unfortunately, nobody was ever able to get close enough to one to actually use it. But they use them all the time now in whale and shark research. Oh, wow. Is it's a dart with a little piece of metal on the end of it. It goes out and hits an animal's skin. It's harmless. It just takes a little plug of skin out of the animal, and then you retrieve it on a rope. And from that little piece of skin, you can get DNA uh, information, and you can also get information about how healthy the genetic population this animal came from is. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Be able to identify whatever kind of animal it is just from this one little piece of tissue. 
Now, talking about... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, Scott. Talking about DNA, and you got me onto this now. Now, Professor Neil Gimmel was recently at Loch Ness. Uh, That's eDNA. eDNA. So this is the new study. Now, what do you think of the chances of something like that working at Lake Champlain is? Well, I've just had as much uh, likelihood of working as it would at Loch Ness. Uh What what the principle it's based on is that all animals shed skin cells Uh in the water. So what they're doing is they're retrieving DNA information from dead skin cells in the water. Now, they've oh, yes. used this technology successfully to do population studies on sharks. So it's already established that the technology works. Wow. It just depends on well, what's living in Loch Ness. Sure. I mean, I'm still waiting with bated breath for the results yeah. of that test. Well, and my part, biggest fear is that it will come back negative. Well, That's what, yeah. we don't know yet. The, the, no, we the don't. The problematic part is if you get... DNA from an eel, are they going to be able, from that one little sample, is it going to be contaminated? Are they going to be able to tell if it's, okay, this is an ordinary European eel, or it's some giant eel that we don't know about? And there's all sorts of possibilities. Sure, there are sure. Amphibians in Loch Ness, there are toads and newts. So if you get amphibian DNA, that could confuse that matter. Uh huh. Uh-huh. It would be intriguing if they get sturgeon DNA because there are, you know, there's been all kinds of theorizing about sturgeons in Loch Ness, but no one's ever caught one. So They've there's never sturgeon. caught one. Yeah, sturgeons. Mm-hmm. The same with the whale's catfish. You know, uh, I you know I I don't know how they would have got there. There are there is a small uh, I forget which part of England there are now. There's a small population of introduced whale's catfish in certain lakes on uh, on Nobleland. Um, I think it's in the north of England somewhere. I forget now. But I don't think they've spread very far. You know, well, they I haven't been it, able to spread. The water in Loch Ness is too cold mm. for a population of whales, catfish to breed. It's it would, not, I think it would be too deep as well, surely. It's not, it's not too cold for a sturgeon to breed in, however. Uh-huh. But like I said, we haven't established that there are any sturgeons in Loch Ness. I'm not saying there aren't. There yeah. could and they're bottom dwellers. If there are sturges in Loch Ness and they stay on the bottom, we might not know about it. To me, that just, I mean, not theorizing about this too much, but it just doesn't uh, accommodate the, the types of sightings that are most regularly reported in, in Loch Ness. Of course, you know, you'd be looking for the tail fluke as well, which yeah, would be, well, be quite handy. One problem with the sturgeon idea, and I've pointed this out to several people in uh-huh. the past, is that young sturgeons have that long-looking ski nose. Uh-huh. And sometimes baby sturgeons will swim with that nose sticking up out of the water, and it looks like a long neck. Uh-huh. You know, but the thing is, as they get bigger, their body shape changes. That long snout becomes blunt, and they lose their scoots. So a really big adult sturgeon would not have that long, ski-looking nose sticking up out of the water to be mistaken for a long neck and head. So that's one problem with sturgeon. I, I, I would agree with that. It just doesn't seem to be a, a very adaptable monster imposter. I think the no. eel is, and the world's catfish also, in many 
physical descriptions when at the back of the animal is seen or you know a long serpentine creature is seen of some kind yeah. that's fine but you had the neck three four five six feet out of the water with a curved head of some kind on top. Well, you know we get one, into the realm of the impossible suddenly don't one, we one thing that you can counter the long neck arguments with and it's true up to a point is floating logs i've seen it myself i yeah. have floating wood debris standing up out of the water that for all of all the world look like the head and neck of a plesiosaur uh-huh. but you know after about two or three seconds you see it's not alive it's a piece of wood exactly. however if you had a situation where this piece of wood bobs up for about two seconds and then sinks to the bottom that's uh-huh. a different situation somebody could be fooled by that so it's always I'm sure it does happen i'm sure yeah. it does happen uh it's not without outside of the realms of possibility for me it, i normally try to focus on the more uh, facially or morphologically descriptive sightings when people yeah. describe it you know very detailed face and length and head size and arms and all so the rest of it well, i think well you know it's, it's very hard so lake monster videos yeah. that are obviously just waves yeah and well we discussed know, that one recently the yeah. way. and yeah. some, of, some of them are so ambiguous that even if it was a monster you can't yeah. tell the difference so it's yeah. basically useless as evidence so why concentrate on it it's just like well, well i think exactly the same thing about that now i recently listened to talking about a similar subject to jeff meldrum um, review the paddy footage had it all they had the original they had it really tidied up and he went over the whole thing it's like 50th anniversary review of the paddy footage it's great to see it, it really fresh but what he pointed out was something for the bigfoot world and it also applies to lake monster world he said anything less clear this is still disputed but we can't disprove it anything less clear than this footage is no evidence at all because essentially if this some of the clearest footage we we have to date is still disputed anything less is just no good yeah there's nothing for us with that statement you know Mm. um i say from lake champlain the three best pieces of photographic evidence you got is the mancy photograph the bonnet video and the olsen video beyond Uh that it's you know yeah and most people that are pro nessie seem to agree that the best evidence you have for nessie are tim dinsdale's film yeah and the underwater rhymes evidence from the 1970s it doesn't get yeah. other than that and you see no, how just... controversial even those are you know well yeah i mean it always amazed me that um he was such a controversial character uh, him and uh edgerton uh where they had such fantastic reputations oh, in the scientific world before they got there and it just shows how far people will go in, in discrediting individuals that it's nobody hard to discredit. ever discredited anything that they have done in the scientific field except for nazi evidence yes exactly exactly i mean this guy edgerton what did he do he invented the cameras that took the photos of the atomic blast well that's right? probably Wyckoff. oh so sorry that's right that's yeah. right it was they worked enough. together yeah, uh, Edgerton invented the strobe camera that could. Yes, sorry, a, yes, yeah. Like bullet frozen in that air. Uh huh. Yes, but but still with that, um, I, I do mix those guys up a lot. Still with that, this, this 
the CV, if you received this CV, I would investigate you think, oh my goodness, I'd yeah. probably believe anything this person told me. This is a this is a reputable professional CV from a, from an else, achiever in the world of invention. Somebody and, else that was directly involved in that with a stellar reputation is Martin Klein. He invented side scan sonar. Wow. Wow. So where do we go from there? I mean, if those guys couldn't get their evidence accepted well, in that you know, way. The only thing that's going to go beyond that could break through that wall is a piece of a body, a yeah. top specimen. So that's what yeah. I'm going to concentrate my search on. Uh huh. No, I think that's that. That's definitely worthwhile. Um, just two final things before we we finish up. Now you're down in Florida. I was in Florida accidentally recently on my way to the U.S. A storm sort of grounded me there. Yeah. And I was very intrigued by the um at the back of the hotel there was what they called a pond, which was a lake as far as I was concerned, and there were deck chairs and uh, hammocks next to it, and no swimming alligator signs all about the place. I was amazed that there was no fence <laughs> uh, of any kind. And uh, the woman at the hotel just explained to me that, well, they're everywhere, so we don't stop bother with that kind they of They are everywhere, and, and I'll be adventure. honest, I'm terrified of them. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I won't get any closer. I've got several photographs. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm scared to death of them and obsessed with them at the same time, if you can imagine sure. that. I won't get any closer than 15 feet. If it's sitting on the bank, I'll, I'll get 15 feet away and take its picture, but wow. I won't get closer than that. But, I, had, I, mean, I had one move its leg, and I ran. I'm just like, <laughs> chances. And I, I sure as hell won't get in the water with them. Do they cause much of a death toll down there? Once in a blue moon, there's, there's yeah. you know, every couple of years, there's a few deaths. Okay. So it's, yeah. It's not overly common. We're not talking about yeah. tens of people every year. There's one that lives on a golf course not far from here. They call him Chubbs. Oh. He's feet long. There's, they took pictures of him. It looks like something out of Jurassic Park. I've seen him on YouTube, actually. Yeah, I huge. Golf course. I called the golf course to try to go look for him, and they wouldn't let me. Well, yeah, sure, if you get eaten, it's that well, bad, probably, right? <laughs> yeah. I, did, I just wanted to get some video of him, but they wouldn't let yeah. me. Now, apparently there are... Other lake uh, water monsters in Florida, apart from crocodiles and, and pythons, there are undiscovered. Probably the, probably the best known is the uh, St. John's River monster. Uh huh. This is uh -huh. a huge river that runs all the way from northern Florida, from Jacksonville, all the way down, almost all the way through the state. I mean, it's a huge river. And, like, and what kind of appearance does that have, the St. John's River monster? Is that a plesiosaur type? Plesiosaur. Type with a long neck, and uh, there are reports of long neck type monsters in the Florida Panhandle. Probably the most famous case is the Pensacola attack on the. Uh, oh yes, rat. I'm sure you've heard about that. So, oh, and of course, and the um, uh, is it Brett Sauerwein um, okay, monster? That's, yeah, that's over on the um, east coast of Florida. Uh -huh. Again. So it's about midway up the, the other that coast was, of Florida. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, that was very interesting. Now, I think you've answered my next question. My next question was going to be, um, would you not also like to spend a little time looking for cryptids in your own locale? But clearly, the alligators are the answer to why so you're not far, doing it. <laughs> so far, I haven't been able to get any uh, help. 
I know two or three different cryptos of all just here in Florida. I know Chuck Bogan. I know Scott Marlowe, Robert Robinson. Oh, wow. So okay. I'm trying to get something together to do here in the winter when I'm not at Lake Champlain, but I just haven't wow. been able to get it organized yet. So you know that that makes that, sense to me. Um, Turning in the back of my it's on it's on the back burner. So sure, hey. no, it, you know sometimes the closest thing to you is. Um, is the one you you see the the least because it's right in front of your eyes, isn't it? So yeah, it's um yeah. it's hard to get on those things when one you're at home. One too far away too that I would like to investigate, and I was actually there last summer, is the uh, Altamaha River in Georgia. Yes. That's a very credible one. Mm, I'd love to I see went, that. I went to see the statue on the way up to Lake Champlain. Normally I fly, but this this past trip. We drove up and then I flew back. On the way up, we hit uh, Darien, Georgia, and saw the wow. statue, the famous statue. But we we didn't really have time to investigate. But hopefully, at some point, I'll go back. Sure. I mean, I know there's that that great YouTube footage of something large turning and slapping yep. the water. Yeah. Um, I, which seems very credible, although people have you know obviously. Cited manatees and uh, and the like as an explanation for that. There yeah, was the famous hoax of, as well uh, of the Carlos oh, yeah, on the that, beach. I was I was involved in that. Yeah, initially happened. Me and Alex Bob did some uh, work on that. Yeah, I remember that, and it, it seemed it always gave that away to me actually. That from the very beginning was the um, the fin that you could see looked like a fish with its uh, head and tail chopped off to me. Yeah. Something about it looked fish-like the whole time, and that's a the first thing. A lot of those carcasses that have that general appearance uh -huh. usually turn out to be mutilated basking sharks. Yeah. 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 Now, I know that Marcus um, uh, Himmler is actually a, a very good authority on that, and I, I hope to get him on this show at some point. Yeah, he's a great guy and yep. very nice, too. Yep. Um, just before we finish up, and I, I'm not going to keep you here all, all night, I've really, really enjoyed picking your brain to find out what you know, and I know you know a lot I, about this. Having, so, having me on, I've, I've enjoyed it. Well, it's it's been great for me, and I've I've actually, although the strict uh, the questions are structured, I've I've learned a lot, and not just for the audience at home, it's been good for me too. Just finally, you know, you're going again to Lake Champlain this year. You've got a, a GoFundMe campaign. Where can people find you? How can they su support the work that you do as well as the GoFundMe? What, what can they do to help you? Well, you know, um, I have several Facebook groups. I have one called Champ Lake Champlain Monster Research by Scott Mortis and William Jorgenis, uh -huh. which is primarily focused on Champ. And then the wider group, which encompasses Champ, Nessie, Sea Serpent, all of it, is the Zombie Plesiosaur Society. Uh huh. Uh -huh. Yep. So I would suggest people join those groups. And if you want to donate toward the upcoming Champ Expedition, which will be sometime this summer, uh -huh. you go to GoFundMe and punch up Lake Champlain Monster Hunt, and it should take you right to it. And you can donate there. So Fantastic. any donations would be appreciated. I'm not. I'm not, you know, acting like a whore asking people for money, but if they believe in what I'm doing and want to help, any donations would be appreciated, you know? Definitely. Well, it's good, you know, that we, we really appreciate the papers you write, the grip that you have, and, and we believe in your work. And I, 
I would suggest that everybody who's interested in Scott's work gets on there and, and gives what they can because uh, it really is worthwhile. Now, I've been to Lake Champlain. I love the area. I love the, the stories of Champ, and it really does have uh, so much room for investigation as well. And it's, got, it's like the scenery is gorgeous. It's a gorgeous place. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I'm I'm still looking at pictures and clips from my, yeah. from my journey, and it looked like a sea. In fact, I know they called it, it was the one Lake yeah, Champagne Sea. Out the middle of it, you will think you're on the sea. Mm. Oh, really? It makes it really the Great think. Lakes look like a mud hole. I mean, you know, you go to a place like Lake Superior, it's like the ocean. Yes. Oh, yes. No, no, definitely. I mean, they're the size of countries. Some of the countries in Europe, at least, anyway. Yeah. Definitely. So. Yeah, that that that's a big those are big bodies of water. It's been so good to have you on. I'm going to say goodbye, but um, yep. yeah, enjoy the weather down there. I hope you do. You probably will escape this um this uh polar situation that that's hitting the U.S. at the polar moment. Polar vortex. I've heard about it. Polar vortex. I'm glad and, I'm uh, right now. Yeah, yep. exactly. <laughs> and uh, and and beware of those alligators. And I, I really hope to speak to you very soon. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Andy. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. Um, now, I know that we speak a lot, um, you know, for a couple of years now since I decided to to try to try my hand at career cryptozoology. You've been one of the chief advisors in a way. The chief uh, advisors, one of the the, the chief uh, information providers. You know, because you've been dedicated to this this um, lake monster search for so long and I've really benefited from your obsession uh, that has benefited me and I've got tens of, of files that you've you've sent to me over the years of, of different types of lake monster theory and law but of course you know we're probably both really on, on the back of this Professor Gemmel's uh, eDNA um, research that was performed at Loch Ness and and the report or the preliminary report that was issued last year with the for many Nessie uh, advocates the uh, the unfortunate news that they didn't appear to find anything that would match that description in their eDNA report now I know you've had a look at the report a little bit or, or what's there to, to look at and I know people yeah. at Roland Watson also oh. provided great breakdowns of that but what I was really wanting to, to get to is is your overview, your opinion of the report, and if you think essentially there are quite a few loopholes in what they've uh, proclaimed to find or what they could have found based upon the sample they had in the first place to, to compare well, DNA to. There appear to be some. Uh, one thing that Steve Feltham pointed out early on at the press conference with Gimmel when they first announced all this, is that there was no otter DNA found. Mm. And we know there are otters in Loch Ness. I've seen them, yeah. And they're in the water a lot. So theoretically, mm. they should have got some otter DNA, and they didn't, which is kind of odd. So that tells you right there that theoretically, that there, there are things that, we know are in Loch Ness that were not picked up by the environmental DNA survey mm. that should have been. And another thing that was not found was any seal DNA. Yes. And 
well known that, that though there aren't a resident population of seals in Loch Ness, they do occasionally get in there. And you would think there would be some seal DNA, but then again, if they're not in there that regularly, it's possible that could have accounted for the lack of finding the environmental DNA of seals. But that was another oddball thing. Mm -hmm. uh, relative to the plesiosaur idea, they found absolutely no reptilian DNA whatsoever. And uh -huh. there are a few reptiles in Scotland that apparently do occur around Loch Ness. That's, yes, uh, there would be there'd be grass snakes and black yeah, adders and uh, uh, one snake and I think two lizard species. There's there's two types of skink, I believe, and there's also the western green lizard, uh, which is from Europe but prolific throughout most of the UK now. As yeah. that should have appeared, I've seen something when I was in Galloway Forest Park, which is not obviously it's it's far below Loch Ness, but still in Scotland, I saw a few skinks and the old snake even. In yeah. wintertime, when we were there, so well, they, are, they are about for sure. One thing relative to this question that a lot of people don't seem to know that we should point out is there are no native freshwater turtles in the United Kingdom, period. That's right. There are in Europe, but there are none in the UK. Anytime you find a freshwater turtle in the UK, it's an invasive species or is a released pet. That's right. Usually a terrapin or uh, the, the uh, snapping turtle. There's a few of those about as well. And yes. this is all because of the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles craze of the 80s that started again in um, 2014 with the, the new movie that they made. I, in fact, uh, had several terrapins as a child. And there was a local lake to us, at, um, uh, a completely sealed off lake. There's no way out to to, to the sea from it. There's some small rivers. Anyway, there was several bird islands in the middle of this lake, Roth Park Lake it was called, and really large terrapins you see sunning themselves on the islands in the summer that were just released into the lake and they became too big uh, yeah. for people to keep at home. And uh, yeah, that happened. Well, there, are, there are sea turtles that occur around the UK, but there are no indigenous freshwater turtles no, in the UK. Not. A lot of people don't know that, you know? That's right. So, right. what, did they find uh, DNA of freshwater turtles in the study? No, oh, no. absolutely no reptilian DNA whatsoever, which yes. would appear to rule out plesiosaurs as being resident in Loch Ness. Mm. Now, if you had a situation where plesiosaurs were coming from the ocean and only occasionally coming into Loch Ness, you might not find their environmental DNA in the same way that you didn't find any seal DNA. So mm. that doesn't rule out the remote possibility that there could be plesiosaurs coming from the ocean into Loch Ness occasionally and then going back mm -hmm. out and not hanging around long enough or recent enough to have left an eDNA signature. Yes. yes. So all that really tells us, I think we can say with confidence that there is no resident population of plesiosaurs in Loch Ness. And it's also unlikely that there ever was, because if there was, you know, like Robert Ryans was talking about in the mid-2000s, that he thought they, the Nessies might have died off. 
Mm-hmm. And a bunch of carcasses laying on the bottom. Now, if that was the situation, they would have probably still found trace DNA from the dead carcasses laying on the bottom. So that seems to rule that possibility out, too. Yeah, I mean, they even talk about it in the report. It's interesting about your speculation that they could have missed uh, creatures that weren't there at the time or weren't in that area. So... Um, one of the things they say in the report, I've got it open here in front of me, is Loch Ness is vast, and given that DNA signals in water dissipate quickly, lasting days to weeks at most, there remains the possibility there's something present we did not detect because we sampled in the wrong places at the wrong time, or our metabarcoding method could not detect Nessie because the sequence could not be matched with anything in the sequence databases, basically saying we don't have an example of plesiosaur DNA. Um, that's true. And if, um, if that's the case, what we're using, and I think that they use some sort of lizard DNA mixed with something else to try to... What they um, tried to do is they tried to come up with a speculative DNA profile that fell right. somewhere between lizards and birds. Uh-huh. Which would probably be close to what you would get from a non-avian dinosaur. But now, mm-hmm. plesiosaurs are not, were not dinosaurs. Yeah. They were yeah. a separate group of reptiles. Now, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of speculation in the past that they were somehow related to turtles. So I would have thought maybe the, the DNA of the leatherback turtle might have been similar. Mm-hmm. But there's been debate about that, too. So now, they generally, they really don't know. They think... The plesiosaur lineage falls somewhere between the lineage that led to lizards and snakes, the lepidosaurs, and the archosaurs, which includes Uh the dinosaurs, the crocodiles, pterosaurs, and living birds. So, you know, we just don't know. They thought, one, one scientist back in the early 90s thought he had isolated a DNA partial DNA sequence of a plesiosaur from a fossil, but apparently uh-huh. now that has been dismissed as being contamination on okay. the bone. Okay. Apparently now they can't reliably get a fossil DNA sequence from anything older than about 1.5 million years old. Mm-hmm. It would be about probably late Pliocene uh-huh. or uh-huh. the Ice Age right around the time the Ice Age started, so... I mean, I wasn't even aware that they could go back as far as that. that that's even, yeah. to me, well, they, which is quite impressive, but still... Of, there was a lot of speculation that they had found <coughs> DNA from <coughs> T-Rex bone marrow mm-hmm. and from... Uh, what was that, what was that lady's name? Hops. But apparently yes. that's contamination, too. Oh, really? Well, yeah. It was. I know in the creationist community, it was lauded quite a lot the, the blood cells and the DNA, fresh yeah. condition sort of. That's how is it was described that particular T Rex bone, and I believe well, that that the uh, it's ah, real bone name? marrow, but just the DNA signature from it is not reliable. Okay, no. okay. So I mean, that's that's at least yeah. valid. I understood that the professor who declared this findings apparently lost her job. Um, I only wish I could remember her name off the top of my head. I know who you're talking about. Mm. I can't remember her name. No, me neither. It's gone. There's a, 
there's a Wikipedia page called Ancient DNA, if you want to look it up, that uh -huh. goes through all the controversies in the present thinking on this. So Amazing. That does. In so other what words, are the things? Um, I, I, sorry, go ahead. Well, in other words, we, we don't, we, we kind of have a, a, I mean, you would have a reptilian DNA sequence from a plesiosaur, but how close it would match dinosaurs or lizards or what is an open question. Myself, yeah. I lean toward that it would probably resemble turtle DNA, but there's, like I said, there's a lot of controversy about whether they're related to turtles it's, or not. This is the thing, and so I, what I wonder, Scott, with the, the uh, Professor Gimbel's eDNA um, test, his decision to go to Loch Ness, and he's, you know, he's admitted more or less that this gave us a, a great opportunity to showcase the eDNA uh, science to the world and show people what we could do, and of course Loch Ness the Loch Ness Monster is the catalyst to get the press attention. But it seems really that, uh, from what we're describing, this just from the very beginning, if they even found DNA that was unknown, um, there well, was possibly there no way they is, could ever have categorized it against or proven it. 20 to 25% of what they got back was unidentifiable. But their interpretation of that yeah. is that they were all the the twenty or twenty five percent that was unidentifiable yeah. was either too contaminated yes. or too fragmentary for them to identify. That does not mean that this is necessarily representing an unknown animal yeah. Uh, yeah. DNA sequence. So their interpretation is that that twenty to twenty five percent was unusable because it was contaminated. Or just too fragmentary. So. Yeah, I got that impression. That impression that basically it was just not usable to, to yeah. get any oh, sort of yes. yeah. On the other hand, what would let's say we we had a we were dealing with a giant Tully monster. They don't even know what a Tully monster really is. What would a DNA sequence from a Tully monster look like? You know, exactly. I don't know. Maybe exactly. they don't know either. But you know, that's. I think we're better off being cautious and saying that that 20 to 25 percent is just unidentifiable. I would go along with that. It seemed to be yeah. that they were, they were primarily saying that those samples were unusable, essentially. There is, there is a formal scientific refereed paper coming out. Darren Nash told me this. I don't know when it's coming out, what journal it's coming out in, uh -huh. but it is coming out. So the best thing for us to do is wait and see the formal refereed hard data before we make any final conclusions. Yeah, I think yeah. even even Gemmel and his people say they want to go back and do better again. You know, so this might well, just this... be the first step in a long process. You know. And yeah, well, I think so. And, and just playing devil's advocate here, they even say themselves they may have sampled in the wrong places. And after all, Loch Ness is vast, and it is vast and in depth. Yeah. And Especially, there are weird, weird things about the water quality in Loch Ness. Yes, the peat contamination and and all mm. that kind of stuff. So who knows? That might, might uh, the pH factor might be a something with this. I really don't know. But the formal paper should address all this. And and do you think, especially when it came out for you know uh, people who've dedicated a lot of their lives to this study, people Lochside people like. Um, 
like Steve Felton, for instance, like Adrian Shine, like Dick Rayner, that this would have been a big blow to some of those researchers, or you know, just the uh, uh, an affirmation of something they'd suspected all along, well, or does it just leave more questions than it's answered? This really? environmental DNA survey had some important things to say about the different theories regarding different kinds of fish that yes. people thought might be the Loch Ness Monster. They mm -hmm. found absolutely no shark DNA, which would appear no. to rule out Greenland sharks. That's right. Sorry. Sorry, Jeremy. So, <laughs> but, you know, like I said, relative to the plesiosaur idea, if a Greenland shark only occasionally came in and went back out again, then, then we can't completely rule it out, but it does rule out a resident population of Greenland sharks. Mm -hmm. And I think you can pretty much well um, put the Wells catfish idea to, to bed because Wells catfish do not occur in the Moray Firth, to my knowledge. No, and I don't they migrate very far in the waters that they live in. In other words, they they may occasionally go into salt water, but it's not a regular thing for them. So no. the idea that there were Will's catfish in Loch Ness was based on the idea that somebody had stocked them there many, many years ago, and there was a resident population of them in Loch Ness that had been living on and possibly dying out. So the fact that they found no Will's catfish DNA in Loch Ness seems to tell me there is no resident population of whales catfish in Loch Ness, and it's highly unlikely that they would be migrating in from the Moray Firth, which is a body of salt water. So I think, based on that, I think you can lay the whales catfish idea to bed. And the sturgeon idea, now the sturgeon idea has always been based on the premise that oceanic sturgeon come in from salt water mm -hmm into rivers and bodies of fresh water to spawn. Now, if you have a situation like that of surgeons coming in from the Moray Firth, occasionally into Loch Ness, that idea is still viable because if they're only occasionally coming in, you might miss their environmental DNA signature. So I wouldn't rule out the sturgeon idea, but I think you pretty much well lay to bed the idea that there's a resident population of plesiosaurs or a resident population of whales, catfish, and Loch Ness. I think uh -huh. Steve felt pretty much well throw in the towel on that idea, but he hasn't ruled out there being a Loch Ness monster. Yes, no. Well, I saw that, and I, for somebody like him that's that's dedicated, you know, such a wealth of time and and life. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, to this, I've been this looking, lakeside research. I've been looking for twenty-seven years, but I'm hmm. not out there every day. Yeah. No, no. And for the last eight years, I've only been going back once a year, but I'm still looking. But not like he has. I mean, he's there every day. You know, so but that's that's his life and livelihood, props. as far as I'm aware. Yes. You've got to give him props for that. That's Absolutely. that's basically what he does all the time. You know. I awesome. I think it takes a special kind of dedication, and without a little bit of obsession, you just wouldn't make it through. You'd have to be kind of obsessed in a way, wouldn't yeah. you? You must feel that way yourself. You had your your sighting, let's just talk about that as well. You had your sighting, was it 1992 or 93? 94. 94, 94. July and just go through that, describe that. Well, I was at a place called Battery Park in Burlington, Vermont. Uh -huh. 
up on a bluff, watching out toward the lake with binoculars. And I noticed out near a buoy about a thousand yards out, this big hump-looking object come up about 15 feet long with a smaller hump-like object on top of it. Uh-huh. It was a garbage bag color, kind of colored up like a leatherback turtle, a uh-huh. greeny black, but without the spots that you see on a leatherback turtle. Uh-huh. Then the object turned to the right, and when it did, that smaller object was on the right end of the larger hump, and it had the appearance of either a head or a flipper sticking up in the air. Uh-huh. And it started swimming with kind of a bobbing motion, Swam to the right for maybe about 10 seconds and then stopped and then sank like a rock and it was over. Wow. I didn't have a camera, but I went home the same day and I uh, made drawings. And I still have those. The drawings I made the very same day, hours after it happened. Wow. Now, I think, actually, I, I have seen some of those drawings in the past. Now, when you were looking out onto the lake at that point, had you gone there because you're interested in champ or were you just there on, on some type of holiday living in the area no, and had, your interest started off to that? I had purposely moved to Burlington, Vermont to pursue the, the champ question. So I was out there watching okay. the lake from a place that I thought might be a good place to look. And it was. Uh, and yeah, I just got lucky. And, um, since that happened, two pieces of evidence that resemble what I saw have popped up. Uh-huh. Fifteen years after I had my sighting in 2009, Eric Olson videoed something very similar in shape to what right. I saw at yes. Oakwood Park in Burlington. They're very similar. And then, July 4th of 2017, William Draginis and myself were over where the Baudette video was filmed at uh-huh. the mouth of the Sable River, and a similar shaped object swam underneath the boat, and we got a sonar graph of it. Yes, I remember that. We were discussing just yesterday uh, that there may appear to be horned-like protuberances on, on top of the um, what might be the head of the creature, if it is yeah, a creature. Yeah, on the sonar, on the sonar graph, you see this, this round body with what appears like a long neck looking structure and possibly a head and there's the indication of two little bumps on top of that head looking object. I mean, that would be a fascinating um, corroboration, yeah. some of the Loch Ness about What these are, yeah, I mean, the Indians call these creatures the great horned serpent. Mm-hmm. So they talked about them having horns and snorkels too. And then there's the famous underwater gargoyle head picture that Robert Rines got yes. back in 1975 that some people believe is a tree stump and other people believe is the head of a Loch Ness monster. It appears to have these horns or snorkel-like structures too. Uh-huh. uh-huh. It certainly does. And I, so, I mean, interesting. I don't know. The point is nobody knows at this point, it, but it's certainly intriguing and keep looking. But it does. They do seem to. They do seem to um, be featured. These horn-like protuberances do seem to be featured in quite a number of lake monster sightings worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. There's one one really good one from 1971 from Lake Champlain that describes these horns. But you know, 
Um, um, what is that one? Oh, I'd have to look it up. I can't remember off uh-huh. the top. I see. Yeah. I was fishing in 1971 and saw one with horns. I think he estimated the size of the creature to be about 40 feet long, but I find that a little okay. a little hard to buy. But maybe he just, you know, was so excited he overestimated the size. But he clearly sure. described two snorkel-like horns, and there's a still. From the Olsen video, where you see the indication of two bump-like objects on top of the mm. head, which mm. could be ears or uh, these horn-like mm. objects, nobody knows. And do you think, because um, correct me if I'm wrong, most champ sightings tend to be within the 15 to 20 feet um, length, or approximately yeah. around about that length, is that 15, right? 15, 16 feet long. Uh-huh. The object, the, the animal or object that the boatette and a falter saw was estimated to be 15 feet long. When Liz Von Mugenthal recorded her echolocation-like sounds, in 2003, something swam underneath the boat at the same time the sounds were recorded. And based on the sonar from that, they estimated that was about 15, 16 feet long. And what I saw with my own eyes, I compared with a boat and figured out was probably about 15 feet long. So but that was just a section evidence. of the animal you saw, not the entire Well, entire I think creature. probably, most likely, most of the length, I would think, but, uh-huh. you know, but I, I wouldn't really, I wouldn't really think they would get any bigger than 20 feet long myself. Sure. I mean, most of the, uh, the sightings I've come across in my you know, very brief study of Lake Champlain seem to be around about that length. And, and what about characteristics, physical characteristics? And we've talked about some horn-like protuberances on the head, but what about the descriptions of the head that people have given? Um, are they normally long-necked? Do people describe them as they did you historically as having a horse-like head or dog-like head? Or is it the eel-headed, reptile-headed? Horse-headed or snake-headed, usually. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah. And do you think that's something that people sort of Kind of pluck out of their uh, their mental libraries, it were the, the comparative animal that well, sort of closely fits what they're looking at. This not... would be a good time to point out to people about the partial unreliability of eyewitness testimony. Uh-huh. The human memory does not work like a video camera. Mm-hmm. People's memories can mutate over time, and they're very vulnerable to the power of suggestion. You know, if you suggest to somebody, oh, you saw this or you saw that, the their, their memory can actually mutate into the suggestion that you have made mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. So this is why I try, for the most part, to put the emphasis on other forms of evidence, such as photographs, videos, uh-huh. audio recordings. I mean, these are things that... that can be re-examined over and over and over again. You know, you yeah. can go back and analyze and study these things. You can't go back in a time machine and see what an eyewitness thought they saw. That's right. That's right. And, I, mean, I was and, saying to somebody recently about and that. And if you take somebody that believes what they saw and give them a lie detector test, they're going to pass the lie detector test, but all that tells mm. you is that what they believe they saw is what they believe they saw. 
That's they're right. telling you the truth about what they remember or their impression of what they remember. That does not tell you exactly what they saw. It just tells you that they believe this is what they saw, and they're telling you the truth to the best of their ability. Now, on the plus side of eyewitness testimony, when you have multiple people that all see the same thing at the same time and seem to report to you that that's what they saw and they're mm -hmm. consistent across the board for the most part, that means something. That's not a hallucination. That's more than one witness telling you, corroborating each other. So that's important. Those sort of sightings are in a different category than just one person that saw something. If somebody has a photograph or a video and you can find no evidence that the video has been tampered with and it basically corroborates their eyewitness testimony, that's important too. So, you know, it's not wise, despite the shortcomings of eyewitness testimony, it's not wise to just immediately throw it all in the garbage because you're throwing away the baby with the bathwater. Eyewitness testimony has some relevance to this because there are apparently things that you can get out of eyewitness testimony, of, you know, things that people claim about the behavior of these animals and all this stuff that you need to take into consideration. Okay. However, you shouldn't build, you shouldn't build the foundation of your case primarily on the eyewitness testimony. You should give it proper weight, but it's, it's more prudent to build the strength of your case on other forms of evidence, material forms of circumstantial evidence. Well, I, w I would agree with that. Uh, from my personal perspective, I think eyewitness testimony, it, it's the billboard on the, on the highway that tells you where the next rest stop is or where you should be heading to. Um, yeah. And without it, we wouldn't be searching for anything anyway. But it's not proof of anything. It's no, just it's an indication. Yes, even, even with, the, with the best material evidence you have at this point, the best you can do is a circumstantial case. The only thing that's going to break through that wall is a type specimen or a piece of a type specimen uh -huh. of some sort, preferably one that's already dead. I don't condone hurting or harming one of these animals or uh -huh. killing one if they exist. There ought to be a way either getting a tissue sample through some harmless means like a biopsy dart, which I have been trying to do. I was just going to ask you about that. Now you have one of but these for your next expedition, yeah. is that right? I mean, uh, well, I, I've had, I've been using them since 2017, so. Okay. Uh, it's just have a you, of being lucky. I mean, they tried for many, many, many years at Loch Ness to do the same thing, and were never able to get close enough to yes. one to do anything with it, so. But it's better, better safe than sorry if one does pop up two feet away from the boat, and I can yeah. dig in a tissue sample, better to be prepared than yes. just sit like an idiot, you know. So well, I, I probably think more probably more doable is looking for bones of ones that died recently, or maybe even died during the period of the Champlain Sea, that might be laying in the bottom of some cave that's above water now. That's a that's the other tack I'm taking. So 
that's a, that I think that's a, a good idea too. Now, what is the what are the water conditions like at Lake Champlain? When I visited, it was quite murky, but I was told that that was quite unusual. There'd been some sort of algae bloom at that time. Uh, well, what's it like ordinarily in its best state? Well, you know, um, sometimes the water is clear, and other times it's very cloudy. In 2017, when William. Eugenius, my late partner, and I were out on his boat. We had underwater cameras we deployed, and the water clarity was so bad, there was no usable photos or videos from underwater. Mm -hmm. So, But then back in 2014, we did the same thing, and we had really nice uh, water clarity in Button Bay. But unfortunately, uh -huh. the only thing we managed to capture on the underwater camera of significance was one fish, probably a salmon. So... It's just a question of being in the right place at the right time with good water clarity. I mean, look at look at look at what Robert Ryan's did in the 1970s. I mean, it's so impressive to capture that yeah. in water like Loch Ness, where you, you can barely see in a hand in front of your you face. You have an it's open amazing. mind about the existence of the Loch Ness monster. That's mm. some of the best evidence there is. You know, I and, mean, it's been heavily criticized over the last 40, yes. 50 years, but some people still find it valid, I, me being among them, the, the underwater flipper photos and the, the long neck body shot with the two flippers are very impressive. Well, let's just talk about that evidence very briefly. I know a lot of people aren't familiar with it, but, but for people who have not heard of it before, let's talk about Robert Rhines, the man, about his achievements and, and the stature and... Um, expertise of this individual that would made it so unusual actually for him to spend well, so much time at Loch Ness devoting his reputation which was at great risk. Well he was he was both a scientist and a patent attorney. Mm -hmm. So he was he's credited with developing several innovations in sonar and radar back in the forties and fifties. Plus mm -hmm. He, like I said, he was a patent attorney, and he was uh, not only involved inventing, inventing things, but patenting certain inventions, too, with his partners. He was associated with a lot of people from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. <laughs> and some of these were very heavyweight scientists that had developed uh, innovations in uh, photographic techniques like Doc Edgerton developed mm -hmm. the underwater cameras that Jacques Cousteau used back in the 60s, was the inventor of strobe photography, and another associate of Ryan's was Charles Wyckoff, who took the first photographs of atomic bomb explosions. Wow. So these were some really heavyweight scientists with impeccable reputations that worked mm -hmm. with him at Loch Ness. They had a, an organization they put together called the Academy of Applied Sciences. And under the, that auspices, they went to Loch Ness over a period of 38 years. Ryan's last expedition was in 2008. His first one was in 1970. So he looked for the Loch Ness monster for 38 years. Wow. Which alone is very impressive. I mean, that's longer than Tim Dinsdale did. Tim mm -hmm. Dinsdale for a quarter of a century, but Ryan's was there for 38 years. I mean, 
that to me is really amazing. But what amazes me more is, you know, of course, his evidence wasn't completely conclusive because, again, we didn't get a sample. We just got pictures. But yeah. this, with his reputation, well, with the his reputation last of the team. Years, his last few years, they were actively looking with ROVs for physical remains buried in the bottom of the lock because he thought because of the lack of sonar contacts that he had been getting for like the last three or four years that he was going over there that he assumed that the Nessie population had died off and their bodies were laying on the bottom of Lock Ness and he was actually concentrating on trying to find skeletal remains or pieces of skin from dead ones. If you watch the Monster Quest episode, Death at Loch Ness, that documents his last expedition. Mm, the year after that, he died of a heart attack, unfortunately. Mm. But the, the underwater photographs in the 1970s <clears throat> had enough backing from different scientists, most of them in the United States that they were able, that him and Peter Scott were able to go into the journal Nature and give the Loch Ness Monster a Latin name as a tentative new species mm -hmm. called the Scissorus bropteryx. And the foundation for that argument was the flipper pictures from 1972, mm -hmm. which they maintained also had a simultaneous sonar contact showing two large objects Mm -hmm. moving in the same area as the camera at the same time these flipper pictures were taken. So their interpretation and the interpretation of some of the sonar experts that they showed this to was that these were two large animals chasing a school of fish. And that they passed by the camera and you see these two flipper-like images. Now that was all fine from 1975 up until 1983. In 1983, they were accused of retouching the photographs. Mm -hmm. I remember that. To make the amend of flippers. Now, they came back, their rebuttal was that the final flipper images were made by taking the original unenhanced images and running them through various types of color filters to bring mm -hmm. out additional elements that were in the images that were distorted by uh, photographic content. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, before that, first they were run through a computer program at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory by a guy named Alan Gillespie, who's an astrogeologist professor. He's still a professor teaching out at, at a university somewhere out west. Anyway, they ran them through this computer program that NASA used to clean up pictures from space. And what this thing did, this computer program, compared the different pixels, broke, broke the image down into pixels and compared the, the adjacent pixels to each other and cleared up the image. So once that was done, Charlie Wyckoff, who we referred to earlier, took uh -huh. that computer-processed image, 
then run that through various different types of color filters to bring out different elements that were supposedly in the original image. Then Wyckoff took the different color enhancements and sandwiched them all together into one image to produce the final flipper image. Now, the critics of this process maintained that once the final images were done, that somebody went in there and airbrushed them and made them look more like flippers. Now, Rhines, Rhines and Gillespie and Wyckoff published extensive rebuttals against those arguments, saying that, no, that's not the case. But people who did not want to believe this elaborate process that the pictures went through refused to believe it and bought the idea that these pictures were faked and had been mm -hmm. doctored and all this. So you got one group of people saying, no, they're authentic, and you got another group of people saying, no, they've been doctored. So the general overall consensus is that either these pictures are really the flippers of the Loch Ness Monster or they're possibly pictures of flipper-like shapes in the mud on the bottom of the lake. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. that's, I mean, that's, that's where you're at today. So personally, I, I, I buy the argument that they are the appendages of an animal, but other people do not, and it's, yeah. it's an extensive series of arguments on both sides that if you read all the literature, you, you just have to make up your own mind. That's all I can tell you. It's so complicated. Whereas if this was a different person, a different individual that was presenting this evidence, and even with the, um, the, the photographic um, process at that time that they were using being very experimental, and that was the reputation of these men anyway, you can still say that, okay, perhaps they got it wrong. Perhaps they did photograph part of the, um, the bed of the loch there. But these men, this man who had 800 patents, started a law school, um, wrote musicals, um, yeah, had honorary yeah. doctorates from, uh, from uh, uh, countries all over the world. This isn't a man. This isn't a man who makes those oh. kinds of mistakes. And, you look at people involved in their reputations. Mm. Nobody has ever criticized any of their other work other than no. the work that they did at Loch Ness. Exactly. And I think part of the reason why this is is there, there is a certain element in the scientific community that is totally biased against even the possibility of there existing a Loch Ness monster yes. based on their own philosophical, scientific, what they're willing to believe in. Yes. And when there appeared evidence that might suggest that people were actually right about there being a Loch Ness mm. monster, they put their foot down. In I a think nasty, biased sort of way. So I, I think, think yeah. I'm not saying that most of the scientific community has an attitude like that, but I think there is a small vocal minority that refuses to even entertain the possibility that there could be some truth behind this. And they put their foot down and they came up with an ad hoc hypothesis that could potentially explain it away and just kept yelling it over and over and over again till a significant group 
of people said, well, yeah, you're probably right because you're, you're, you keep hammering away at it. So I don't know. Of course, and many of those, um, let's say men, many of those scientific figures at that time who were against it would have been very influential characters yeah. whose word carried a lot of weight uh, in this field. People, there are people that were pro-Nessie that got bullied by their colleagues mm-hmm. into becoming anti-Nessie, such as Maurice Burton. Yes. I yes. think Maurice Burton got scared about his own reputation and did an about-face around the same time that the ichthyologist Dennis Tucker got fired from the British Museum over now. I, <laughs> think right. scared, I think that scared the crap out of Maurice Burton, and he did an about-face. What was the documentary? That really happened, you know? There was a former Natural History Museum uh, uh, one of the one of the main people in there, not 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 the head. Anyway, he was in the documentary years ago, and I I wish I could remember his name. So this is con- just uh, sort of conjecture, I guess, since I can't reference the person. Anyway, in the documentary, says it was very common knowledge at the time that if you went up from the museum to Loch Ness when you came back, yeah. you wouldn't have a job anymore. And That's that John Lamb's head that used you know, to be the head. head. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. And he's talking yes. about. He says. One of my predecessors actually got sacked from his job from going yes. up on the lock, and that's who he's talking about is Dennis that's, Tucker. That's it. So, but I think, you know, the science, because of the advent of the Internet these last 20, 30 years, I know it's 30 years or so, science has become less of a dictatorship because, not a democracy, but less of a dictatorship because of the, the freedom of information and, and the access that people have to it. Whereas back at those times and those days, those people well, at the top could control the flow. And I think philosophically speaking, they were more rigid about what they thought about the possibilities yeah. of living fossils and, and so on and so forth. One thing that's very important for you to understand is that the working scientist, the biologists, the paleontologists that actually do the work don't necessarily have the same opinions as academic administrators who run these organizations mm-hmm. and institutions. Sometimes there can be very different opinions among the academic administrators than there are among the workaday scientists. And it seems like most of the bias against things like parapsychology and cryptozoology seem to, to emanate from the academic administrators who are worried about funding for these organizations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's very important to distinguish that, you know, you might have, you might have some ichthyologists or marine biologists sitting around the coffee room talking about Nessie, you know, just entertaining ideas, and then their boss, the administrator, comes walking in and says, oh, we better shut up about this, you know? Mm-hmm. These type of things, you know, scientific institutions and scientists try to be objective, but they're still human beings at the same time. So there are there is scientific politics and resistance to new ideas and prejudices and, and biases that all come in because everybody is human. And people have different ideas about 
what they're willing to accept is possible as being real or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, the parapsychologists, I mean, they're actually, the Parapsychological Association is actually in a member of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. But they barely got in, and there's still controversy to this day about their membership in it. Uh -huh. And the International Society of Cryptozoology went belly up back in the early 2000s. And unfortunately, they were never able to build up enough of a reputation to try to get in like the Press Psychological Association did. But the thing is, to me, it's, it's, it's more easier to believe from a rational standpoint in the idea of an unknown animal species we haven't found mm -hmm. yet, and the ghost. But yet, the Parapsychological Association is in the American Association for the Advancements of Science. So some people consider parapsychology a legitimate science. Could that be so, because... I mean, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to disparage... I'm not trying to disparage any thing about parapsychology, I'm just trying to illustrate a point, is that the hunt for psychic phenomena is considered a science, a legitimate science, by some people in the scientific community. So I don't see why the search for unknown animals should be frowned upon if they're accepting psi phenomena. Well, I wonder I'm if it's talking. because the burden of proof is as the non-corporeal, uh, so to speak, would be far lower for parapsychology than it would be for cryptozoology, which is the search for animals we have not yet discovered or well, have believed to become extinct. And therefore, we have to produce something. Whereas the, the subject of whether paranormal um, well, uh, beings are, are real at all, it's, it's, it's academic, isn't it? It could be purely based upon point, opinion. At this point, you know, even the pro-parapsychology people, they say there is a phenomenon, but they don't really know what it is yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They, they believe there's something there, but they can't tell you how it works or what's behind it. You know, they some people know. have said that what we call parapsychology has nothing to do with the mind or the conventional field of psycho psychology. Some people have insisted in calling it paraphysics, that it's closer to mm -hmm. something, to un, some unknown physics law that we don't understand yet. Okay, and I mean, that, that would make a lot more sense to, to me. Yeah, that is probably closer to being some kind of advanced quantum mechanics thing that we don't understand yet, because so, some concepts in ab ab abstract experimental physics are mind-boggling, sound mm -hmm. like something so they apparently are, you know, supported by mathematical formulas. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, you know, henceforth, because that's sort of unquantifiable as it stands, it's easier to administer it into the, the scientific, um, into you know, the regulated and the, the accepted scientific bodies. Whereas for cryptozoology, essentially, once you find the animal, and categorize it, it's a life, you know, it's part of the general life sense, it's part of the, yeah. the zoological taxa of the known world. So, um, DNA basically work, trying to administer, we're trying to uh, implement yeah. that some of these animals get placed into the books, you know, to the regular well, books of what is known to tried, exist, like the... They have tried the DNA thing with Sasquatch and Nessie, 
and the results are that so far the the best evidence from Loch Ness is that we're dealing with possibly a giant eel because of the massive amount of eel DNA that was found. But what about the morphology? That doesn't match well, any of the sightings. The thing is, there are, and I have photographs of this, there are eels with hormonal imbalances that uh -huh. can have a fat central body and a thinning toward the head that can resemble a long neck. So it is possible. If you but had raised a, out of the water? Yeah, yeah. If you had a, I've, I've got a picture of one with oh, the really? body raised up out of the water. So yeah, it is possible in theory. Okay. My okay. problem with the ill idea is that I can't buy the idea of a three or four or six foot ill growing to ten mm -hmm. to twenty feet long. However, there are marine eels called conger eels that are very similar in their appearance that can get ten feet long and as big around as a telephone pole. I could That's see right. one of those growing to ten, fifteen feet long, but they're supposed to not be able to survive freshwater conditions. No. However, my friend who's been one of the most active promoters of the idea that the Loch Ness Monster and similar monsters could be giant eels is William McDonald. He claims to have kept a conger eel in a freshwater aquarium for a few years until it died. So okay. if what he's saying is true, it's possible that perhaps a conger eel could survive freshwater conditions. Well, we do have conger eels around the, the British Isles. I've actually been, I used to go night fishing with my father on a little uh, motorized, uh, on a little motorboat. Um, just off the coast of, of uh, Cardiff in Wales, and we've hooked, I think, a five to six foot congruel at points. And once they get in the boat, you, you really wish you didn't get them in the first place. They're, well, they're very incredibly violent, yeah. very aggressive. Yeah, very aggressive. Um, but they're, if you had, if you had a ten, say, a hypothetically a fifteen foot congruel with a fat body, like mm -hmm. I'm talking about, you would have a reasonable approximation of the Loch Ness monster. So that's why I keep an open mind about this idea. Okay. Okay, well, I think that's that's interesting. Um, again, you know, to to fit these very unusual creatures into the commonly known phenomena, we do have to take some odd twists and turns, and that's something that's always interesting yeah. about skeptical but approaches. But often, the skeptical approach has to be. Eels are vulnerable to hormonal imbalances that can can cause them to, to change and mutate. Eels during their larval stage go through several different stages, almost like a tadpole mm -hmm. turned into a That's frog. Right. So, if you if you mess with their hormonal uh, things at any one of those stages, you could produce some kind of very strange-looking mutation. So, I think it's a, a perfectly viable idea to the uh -huh. plesiosaur. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope we're. I mean, I want there to be plesiosaurs in Loch Ness. And like Champlain, but I'm just looking at it realistically. Sure, this is a viable alternative, and the fact that they've got so much ill DNA pointing in that direction is certainly worth our attention. I definitely think that that's um, right, but they, of course, they couldn't quantify whether they would be large eels, just eels, because the size doesn't yeah, sort of register just with saying, that kind of study. They're just saying um, we've got an overwhelming amount of ill DNA. Yeah. Whether that's from a few extremely large eels 
or if it's just from a large, large, larger population of ills that they expected to find in Loch Ness, we don't know yet. I think they want to go back and do more work to try to answer that question. That's the impression I've got from interviews. So, I do think that um, Loch Ness has always had quite a, uh, a healthy ill population, as far as I'm aware. Um, I think even Steve Felton mentioned when the news came through that one of the first things he saw on his first visit was an eel you know, in the loch, and but even though there have been changes in eel populations around the UK in recent years, it's still, it, we, we tend to have a, quite a viable population throughout uh, that you know, migrate yeah. in and out and um, it well, I will breed, say so this, that of all, of all the different theories that have been put forward to account for these animals, the ones, the two theories that I've been able to get the most interesting information out of and reliable results are the plesiosaur idea and mm -hmm. the eela. Those yeah. are the two ones that I've been able to to make fit the best. So, well, I I, I understand that. Doesn't necessarily say that either one of them is right, but but that is the truth. That's right. And we don't know. Um, of course, the land sightings yeah. do pose a, a bit of a problem for the eel theory. Not, some... not really, no, because eels are amphibious occasionally. No, not because of their amphibious nature when migrating, but because of the uh, the described morphology of the, the, the creatures that are seen. You know, flippers, um, well, they bodies, do have little necks on tails. Front, they do have a set of front uh, petrol fans. They do. Which could like flippers. So if they're dragging you, along, there seems to be some confusion <clears throat> among eyewitnesses about a set of back appendages. Uh-huh. So, but how big uh, would these creatures have to be to, to surprise somebody like that? I mean, if you see a migrating eel, let's say you saw a six or seven foot migrating eel, if there was one of that size in Loch Ness, crossing the road in search of a new water source uh, on its way out to the sea, you're not going to really mistake that for, you know, like that. Well, like for, for a creature with a, a big, um, body and a long how, neck. Well, it depends on how fat the central body is. If you've got so it an have eel, to be very, very um, mutated. It has then. to be very, very fat. Yes, but it is possible. I've, I've actually got photographs of eels. No, that sure. body can. I so. see that. I see that. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I can see that, but it still seems. What I'm very interested in, Scott, really, is, um, you know, like Roland talks about the my theory sucks the least theory. So it's sometimes in our skeptical arguments, and they have to be. We have to be skeptical because it, essentially, by well, yeah, possibly believing in the existence of a plesiosaur in our day and age, that's a huge ask. It's, it's a huge leap. It's only really well, the witness sightings that make us even consider it. But most what I'm interested in with the... Um, that one reason that the um, paleontologists are so skeptical about the idea is that during the known accepted period that the plesiosaurs are thought to have been alive in the Mesozoic, their remains are found everywhere. They found all over the Earth, and then after the KT event, they seem to just completely disappear, except for fragmentary remains found 
many, many millions of years apart mm-hmm. in different parts of the world, they might find a toe bone, they might find a vertebrae, they might find, uh, oh, let's see, there's been toe bones found, vertebrae mm-hmm. found, and teeth found, but never a full skull. But these have been found as young as the Ice Age and all the way spread through the age of mammals. Now, the main point I'm trying to make here is that from the time of the presumed extinction of the plesiosaurs, you've got a 60 million year period where all these mammals came along and filled the niches of the former dinosaurs and marine reptiles. And then you've got after that, you've got about 2 million years of ice ages. So you've got the, a period of like 60, 66 million years of a basically a missing fossil gap for the plesiosaurs. And in theory, for them to have survived to the modern times, they would, they would have to have robust populations and there would have to be multiple species over time. Now, it's not impossible if you consider the idea they may have took refuge out in the deep ocean. And when the KT event happened, the main thrust of what happened was is that when the meteor hit, it put ejecta of material, a dust cloud, up into the atmosphere that blocked the photosynthetic food chain from the sun, killing the plant life that, that, that relied on sunlight, which was the base of the food chain. So in theory, this was the catalyst that rippled up the food chain from the animals that ate vegetation and the predators that ate the vegetarians, and they all starved to death. And this presumably happened in the ocean, too, with phytoplankton that was dependent on sunlight. Well, now, we know there is a food chain in the ocean that is independent of sunlight that is propelled by um, heat vent uh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. chemicals coming out of these black smokers. You know what I'm talking about? I know what you mean. In the deep ocean. Yeah, there's uh, volcanic vents. yeah, these, these food chains that exist in the deep ocean are down so deep where sunlight doesn't penetrate, they're chemical-based. Now, it's possible, just possible, that maybe some of these marine reptiles, when this KT event happened, were able to exploit by going down and finding these vent fauna food chains and surviving on that to squeak through with much reduced populations that managed to stay stay out in the deep ocean. We haven't found them yet. And that maybe a few of them came into these places like Loch Ness and Lake Champlain when they were connected to the sea at the end of the Ice Age and got trapped or just occasionally come in and out. So we don't mm-hmm. know, but that is possible. I mean, that's a lot of, a lot of improbable contingencies yeah. to give way. But it's not impossible. It's merely improbable. Well, my issue with that essentially is it's based on conjecture in the first place. Nobody really asked with this KT event. Um, 
it okay the plant life dies off the vegetarians have nothing to eat there's no phytoplankton in the sea also then the carnivores have nothing to eat everything starves to death but we still have animals today so if there was such an event there should be no animals there should be no life on earth right now I don't believe well, yeah, that's, such a that's, thing that's, that's, <coughs> happened, that's or at least not Achilles to that Hill. extent. That's the Achilles heel of the whole argument, Always. is that it's why, didn't the, why didn't the crocodiles die out? die out? Why didn't the turtles die out? The sea turtles, turtles. didn't die out. Yeah, the sharks didn't still, die out either. We have so, other animals that came, that, 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 that exist today. There should be nothing alive <laughs> on Earth. And nobody ever asked that. Why is there life on Earth right now if the, that event really happened? I think if there was such a thing that it was more localized or shorter lived, and really the dates and the times people give, they're unquantifiable. It's still based well, on some conjecture, it, and it, you know, there's a domino I effect that happened. It really happened. I believe it really happened. The standard arguments that the paleontologists put forward. I just questioned the fact that a plesiosaur was any different <clears throat> from a normal animal like a crocodile or a sea turtle. Yes. And exactly. why the lottery would choose to wipe out all the plesiosaurs and not all the sea turtles. Exactly. Now, it doesn't make any sense stand- whatsoever. I mean, we like to look at dinosaurs based on Jurassic Park like they were mm. monsters. But no, mm. they were animals. That's right. You know, they were animals just like a Siberian tiger or a Kodiak bear. You know, they were scary animals, but they were just animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But I don't know, you know. <laughs> no, I'm I, don't with you. Believe, I don't believe that dinosaurs, marine reptiles, and pterosaurs were were specifically targeted by a cosmic lottery mm-hmm. to be wiped out where the animals that survived were somehow different. It just doesn't just make sense that, that there was nothing to eat. Maybe it's just but... my opinion, but that's my opinion. And I'm, I'm with you. I agree with you on that. I just, yeah, it doesn't make sense from that perspective. I understand it's it's used as a model to explain something. It's still I mean, theoretical, largely, but still, I we're think... Used um, to, we're used to seeing dinosaurs in basically monster movies. Yeah. And we think if we could go back in a time machine that it would be like a Godzilla movie. I guarantee mm-hmm. you, if you went back in a time machine and could see it for what it is, after about an hour, you'd be bored and want to go back. You'd have seen it because they're just animals. Like watching cows grazing. Exactly. Mm, or watching exactly. plants on the Serengeti. I'm not saying, you know, that it's not something to see, but I'm just saying it's not like yeah. watching a movie. You, know? yeah. you wouldn't spend your life there on the Serengeti. It's nice say, for a look a holiday. Let's say hypothetically we find, we eventually find Champ or find Nessie. And once we find it, after a certain period of time, they're just going to become regular animals that we accept, and it's, they're not going to be special anymore. The fact mm-hmm. that we don't know for sure that they exist, we suspect they exist, and we don't know so much about them is what makes them so exciting right now. If we knew that they definitely existed and could observe them on a regular basis, they wouldn't like, be special anymore. Like the giant squid like the exactly. Komodo dragon, like the gorilla. You know, yeah, these things I mean, are, are relatively still, recent discoveries. I mean, yeah, I mean, they're still exciting to a point, but, but mm. it's not like, oh, they're a monster, you know? Yeah, exactly. They used to be monsters, but now they're just animals. And hopefully, we can do that with these 
things like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster, if they exist, we can mm. find them and they'll just become regular animals. That's the goal. At least you know, that's I, my goal. Same here. And I, I look forward to that day. If, if the will is there, at some point, I think technology will lead the way. Some sort of mapping of those surfaces where you can accurately map the entire surface of Loch Ness or um, Lake Champlain and everything that's in it and get a you know a perfect mapped sonar reading of the entire area. It must, it will exist in the future. Well, That's my view. That technology will they're come actually, into... There's an outfit called Kongsberg Limited that uh -huh. has been surveying Loch Ness for almost 20 years now, and they're mapping the bottom of Loch Ness pretty much in a similar way that the Manleys have produced the topographic uh, map of... Um, the bottom of Lake Champlain. So it's oh, happening, but no. it's not done yet. That's amazing. These, uh, AUVs, automated, uh, oh, no, autonomous underwater vehicles. Vehicle. They're, they're kind of yeah. like a programmable ROV that doesn't have a uh -huh. tether. They program it to go out to a certain area and map the bottom and then come back. Drive so they don't have tethers like an ROV. Uh -huh. They're swimming like a missile, like an underwater missile almost. That's that's the kind of technology I'd really like to look into. It's got for, well, this maybe is, not so much Loch Ness, but Loch Moran and some of the clearer. Remember, remember when they found the, the, the movie model at the bottom of Loch Ness they'd been yes. looking for for almost yes. years? ROV, the AUV is what found it. Oh, that's really? How found it. Yeah. Uh -huh. So if you, look, if you look on YouTube videos about the discovery of that monster model you'll yes. see exactly what I'm talking about that's from the Christopher Lee um, Sherlock Holmes I believe um, is it that one uh, yes. uh, Secret Life of Sherlock Holmes yeah where he played yes. Sherlock Holmes brother that's right yeah that's right played Mark. yeah yeah um, really really fantastic and to, to find it still there I mean the pictures were amazing as well. well, yeah, pictures. Yeah, but it was big. I mean, it was probably twenty feet long, something like that. Yeah, it was huge. And I mean, it, it looks. It one of the buoyancy tanks was wrong or something, and it just sank happened. like a rock. Yeah, yeah, something happened, but it just goes to show it was lost forever yeah. in that old time. Well, talking about Loch Ness and Lake Champlain, now Loch Ness is around about I think it's about twenty-five miles long, thereabouts, one to one and a half miles wide, very deep. Allegedly up to 750 feet deep, allegedly. But uh, Lake Champlain, I mean, this is what, 112, 140 miles long, 14 miles widest, as wide as point. 129 miles long. 129 miles. Yeah, but it's only 400 feet deep. Well, still. With an average depth of 64 <laughs> feet. But no, it's still a lot of water. You get out it's in the middle cool. of it, you think it's on the ocean. So what I felt when I was there was that, and having been to Loch Ness a few times, it's the, the difference in the available habitat in a place like Champlain was huge. Well, I saw lots of wildlife. It's got lots of yeah, fish, like lots Champlain of turtles. Champlain has a lot, more, a lot more biodiversity than Loch mm. Ness does. Loch Ness seems to have enough there to support barely a small population of large animals. But Lake Champlain has much more biodiversity. It has, it has uh, amphibians, water snakes, water turtles, mm -hmm. 83 different kind of fish. 
So there's plenty for something to eat in there, a small are population. There, are there otters and beaver as well? Yeah, and water birds. Uh, actually, in 2004, some Maryland tourists claimed to have seen a champ creature trying to attack a seagull, so it's probably a good bet that they eat water birds occasionally. Uh-huh. And Dave Gibson, who's a Bigfoot guy, has also said he observed birds getting off the water as the sun was going down, like they were trying to avoid some kind of a predator. Uh-huh. And thought he heard something taking a bird, and his idea was he thought maybe it was a champ animal eating a bird. So there's another piece of evidence. And there is fossil-preserved evidence of plesiosaurs teeth marks on bird bones, prehistoric bird bones uh-huh. from the Mesozoic. So there's another possible piece of evidence. It would make sense, right, that they would yeah. f- feed upon the available protein sources in the lake. Well, there's a resident population of snapping turtles that live in Lake Champlain. Mm-hmm. They prey, prey on birds too. So I don't see why another possible aquatic reptile living in Lake Champlain wouldn't be feeding on birds, too. They're probably eating amphibians. And like I said, there's all kinds of fish. Lake Champlain supports a population of lake sturgeons that can get seven feet long, and they estimate that the historical population of these fish is 3,000 adult individuals. So if it can support 3,000 very large sturgeons, it could potentially support a smaller population of predatory aquatic reptiles or that would... whatever whatever camp is. Yeah. I mean, what seemed most feasible to me, and I know that the lake is very popular with, with boaters and fishes and all the rest of it, but what seemed very plausible to me is that there was so much space to avoid people and so many nooks and crannies and little coves around yeah. the lake um, that you know, essentially something that's 15 to 20 feet maximum, 15 to 20 feet long, it would be hard to spot. It would be hard to notice most of the time out there on well, the water. If they were primarily nocturnal as well, or using the swamps yeah. and the, the well, marshes around as a, some sort of habitat too, that would be... It's a, exploiting non-pulmonary forms of respiration directly from the water, like this butt-breathing turtles or breathing through their skin. This could give them the ability to stay underwater much longer than we normally assume uh-huh. that an air animal could. Now, a mammal, uh, an aquatic mammal would not be able to do this, but in theory, an aquatic reptile would be able to do this, and crocodiles do things like this, too. So. You told me this is cloacal respiration, is that what it's called? Cloacal say respiration, yeah. respiration, It's yeah. basically, basically how it works. These turtles have a sack in their cloaca, which is their butt, essentially, uh-huh. that is lined with blood vessels. What they do is they draw the water into their cloacal sac, and the blood vessels that are in the sac absorb the oxygen directly from the water like a fish gill and get it into the bloodstream. So uh-huh. essentially, using their, their cloacal sac as a fish gill. That's very, very interesting. Now, Some is it the Mary plants, River turtle in Australia that has uh, the record for... The uh, um, Fitzroy River turtle is the one that exploits it Fitzroy. the most. They estimate uh-huh. 
if the Fitzroy River turtle gets 70% of its oxygen directly from the water through this process. So it's essentially breathing like a fish. Wow. So if you had, in theory, if you had a larger reptile that was exploiting the same thing, that had a bigger cloaca, it might be able to do the same thing on a larger scale. And there's also been some speculation, not much, but a little in the scientific literature, that possibly plesiosaurs could have used this breathing method too. So it's highly speculated, but it is possible. Well, I think in this, this particular area, all speculation is welcome since we know so little anyway. Um, and it would, you know, it's a, a fancy get-out-of-jail-free card, I guess, but it would helpfully explain uh, the lack of sighting. Well, it is, it is theoretically possible, and it depends entirely upon what you're prepared to believe. If you're absolutely got a mm. closed mind on the subject, you could call it special pleading. But it is based mm. on a real scientific fact. Well, it, it is. I, I like that. I like that term, special pleading. It, it's it's always been very attractive to me, as I well, have, have I mean, been. Depends on you know if if you are dead set against an idea, you can always scream special pleading or confirmation bias or whatever, mm. just to make a point. You know that doesn't necessarily make it so. It would yeah. appear to me, Scott, really, that over the years, and observing all the conversations that take place on the, the various forums, that you've actually, for somebody who's a believer in the, or um, an ascriber to the plesiosaur theory, you've actually walked a very um, fine line very effectively. Essentially, you're open well, for the ideas, and yet I you've found some basis and backing for the one that you would, you know, um, I am, most prefer I to... Am actually friends with some very hardcore skeptics mm -hmm. and I respect them and I think they respect me up to a point and I've yeah. actually published two articles in the Skeptical Inquirer newsletter. How many pro-cryptozoology people have managed to do that? <laughs> I have been extremely lucky so obviously I must be part of what I'm saying must be given some weight by even the skeptics. So I try to look at it from all different points of view just to get a thorough grounding on all the different viewpoints. Some people have come around to the idea that all of cryptozoology is not a zoological phenomenon, but mm -hmm. a sociological phenomenon, that it's yes. strictly a cultural thing. So I don't think that's the case, but the jury is still out. Let's wait well, and see. You know? Yes. I don't think it's the case, but I think the um, uh, the culture surrounding it has many sociological elements to it that that um, pertain to special pleading yeah. and confirmation bias, especially perhaps well, things like Bigfoot know, studies. Walking, um, trying to walk trying to walk a middle road is a double-edged sword. Now, mm -hmm. I have a lot of friends with very disparate viewpoints on all this stuff, including skeptics, but at the same uh -huh. time, because I refuse to get pigeonholed into one corner. I take a lot of shit from all sides. But no, that's I've seen it. Right, yeah. I choose to walk, you know? I've seen it, but so, what, what yeah. the outcome of that is, is that you actually maintain communication with all sides, and that's really necessary yeah. if we're ever I mean, to get any, um, any you know, progress in this particular area. If you back me into a corner, I will tell you what I really think. 
<laughs> I try not to let people back me into corners like that, but sometimes yeah. you walk up there and you have to, you know, you have to fight your way out. And I usually do a pretty good job of doing that. So, you know, I don't know what's you know. very funny about that, Scott, actually, is, um, is you saying, if you back me into a corner, I'll tell you what I really think is most probably one of the most British statements I've ever heard from somebody who's well, not British, because culturally yeah, I, we don't uh, like to tell people what we think, but I, I understand I, uh, why you would be that way, because of course you get to have access to all of the information from all of the guests, yeah, and I everybody mean, keeps talking to you, and that's important. To in, my, to... in my personal life, I have friends from all kinds of diverse backgrounds from all over the world, so I'm used to communicating with people of different cultures, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I'm sure that helps, you know. But I really, I really do make an effort to read all the available literature, even the negative skeptical literature, just to get a thorough grounding and understanding of what people are trying to say. Then yeah. I step back and I look at all the stuff on the table, and I say, well, okay, this person thinks this about this over here. But this person over here has a completely opposite opinion. Which one do I think is closer to being right? Mm-hmm. Now, I can understand why people are skeptical of cryptozoology. People have been looking for the Loch Ness mm-hmm. Monster almost the years. The Ian Milne sighting from 1930, we're coming up on the 90th anniversary of that. That was like mm-hmm. the sighting before the Aldi McKay sighting. It was really historically the beginning of the modern Loch Ness monster hunt. They have been looking for Bigfoot for 60 years. Mm. And we don't have a lot of really compelling evidence for people who are not sympathetic to the idea that these animals really exist. The only thing that's going to break through that wall is unambiguous physical evidence that these animals exist. If that ever happens with one of these big cryptids that people have been looking for, like the Loch Ness Monster, the Yeti, Bigfoot, if that ever happens, the floodgates will open in theory. We'll be able to get funding for cryptozoological research because we'll have had a precedent. You know, it, it would be like when the coelacanth got discovered. You know, that opened the idea, mm-hmm. okay, animals that have been presumed extinct since the time of the dinosaurs could theoretically still be alive. At least open open that door a crack, you know? So if we ever discover the Orang Pendak or Sasquatch or the Loch Ness Monster or, or Champ or Cadborosaurus or any of those and really confirm it beyond all doubt that that will get us over the hump as far as credibility and being able to get funding and being able to write in the science journals like normal science fields. So, but that hasn't happened yet. You know, we've got, we've had things like the Zio Maru carcass. Mm. Most people view as being a basking shark and Indeed, most of the evidence points in that direction. Yet, there is a small residue of evidence that people question to say, wait a minute, you know, maybe this wasn't a basket chart. But 
that that ship has already sailed, as far as I can tell. You know, that's just it is what it is. Are we never really going to be able to go back and and find out what really happened there because of the yeah. you know the information or the lack of in the beginning, even with the the, the uh, well, biologist on board, uh, the essentially problem, sketching. The problem with the, the problem with the Zio Maru carcass is that they didn't bring back the skull or some of the vertebrae. If they'd have done that, there probably would have been no mystery. Unfortunately, all they brought back were those fibers, you know, which is not much to work with. So. No, that's not much to work with at all. And, and I think such is, such is life. People in general out there in the world are not looking to collect evidence of unknown animals. And um, I can understand why the, the troll of captain threw the carcass off a board because it was going to ruin his catch and that was his responsibility yeah. you know well, japanese culture they you know said, very well they said, that, in retrospect, they said in retrospect that that was a mistake that hmm. they should have just said the hell with the, the catch a fish and brought that carcass that's after the fact and it's hmm. too late but i, now, I think another, another interesting thing is the 1937 caddy carcass which is still compelling evidence, but without a piece of the actual body, people are always going to be able to say that, oh, it could have been made by a taxidermist or this or that. It could be a mutilated basking shark, you know? So, so that's another compelling piece of evidence, but ultimately, unless they find part of that carcass at this late date, which is unlikely to happen, it's probably another dead end. So Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the pattern you know, is compelling, but but without a piece of corroborating evidence, people are always going to be able to say, "Oh, it's a guy in a suit," you know. So photographic evidence and even video evidence, especially today, when there's so much digital special effects technology to fake things, is never going to solve the the mystery, you know. I mean, it seems to me as if. We constantly, especially in the case of Loch Ness, looking back into the past and disputing and uh, uh, writing op-ed pieces on all of this past evidence, like the surgeon's photo and the, the caddy carcass and the Xeomara carcass and everything, that we can't essentially go back in time and, and prove or disprove what we should yeah. be looking for is, is new evidence. And that, and, to and me, seems to have stopped at Lake Monster... Research. You've got to look at it, too, from the skeptical point of view. They point and they say, see, they've been arguing over the same evidence for That's 50, right. uh, That's right. 90 years. You know, the same old piece of evidence without any new evidence, compelling evidence popping up. So, Let it go. You know. Let it go. But do you think... Well, not, I, I, very... go, just, you know, try to, try to add to the evidence pile, you mm -hmm. know? best but, I've been able to do is in 2016 with the Japanese, we got a video of some kind of appendage coming up, touching a piece of bait, and then in 2017, Will and I got that sonar blob. That's the best I've been able to do so far, but that's all happened in the last four years, so I figure to keep looking in deep water like I've been doing, it seems to be paying off to a, to a certain extent, so that's what I'm going to keep doing. I think I think that's great, and that's really what I'm talking about. It's called, you're going out there year after year after year trying to find evidence. But one thing that's been on my mind recently, especially in late monster research, 
is is it dying out as uh, is the species dying out that the lake monster researchers even in lake champlain there are very few people left now actively researching um around the clock and same with loch ness you know steve's been there for almost 30 years and i don't yeah. really see that there's anybody new to take his place within that with that same sort of fire and gusto that um, well, belonged to that period is it perhaps but, dying out a little and have other cryptozoological subjects taken over the uh, the attention of the the general public there are three sort of skeptical figures at Loch Ness that are all mm. in advanced age, and that mm. would be Adrian Shine, Tommy Harmsworth, and Dick Rayner. They're right. not young men anymore, so I don't know. When these guys pass, there's definitely going to be some kind of a change at Loch Ness. Hopefully Steve will be there, and I know Rowan keeps going back every year, yes. so he's still in the game, you know, as far as actually physically looking for these things. So, yes. wait and see, you know. I would imagine 10, 20 years from now, if there's still things going on at Loch Ness, they're going to look a lot different than they do right now, you know, because and some about... of these have passed on, you know. I, mm -hmm. I don't wish any ill will toward anybody, but I'm just saying. No. I mean, Nobody I'm getting forever. old. I'm 56 mm -hmm. years old. You know? I'm not a young kid anymore, so I, I'm starting to feel it too, you know. I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I do, I really do. I, I'm not there yet, but I'm, I'm on my way. Um, well, my, my feeling about it is that something different, some sort of new discovery evidence, uh, some big, very established evidence would get a, a huge media attention back into these areas of Champlain or Loch Ness or wherever it might be is needed to to interest the, the generation, the next generation, well, the same way we were interested by, you know, yeah. by the In Search of series, by well, the Paddish page, by the... Actually, the press is not helping right now. Every time mm -hmm. a mutilated whale skeleton oh, or a seal washes up, <laughs> they tried it out like it's some kind of unknown sea monster, or every time somebody gets a picture of a blob on the yeah. surface of Loch Ness, yeah. or there's been a lot of wave videos and wave photographs lately that have been I tried know. out as lake monsters. That's not getting us anywhere. You know? No, it, it's really not. I mean, the Ogopogo ones, every time there's an Ogopogo one, it's always a standing wave. Yeah. Uh, the Loch Ness monster, 18 sightings and last, last year, I'm sure at least 12 it, of those were Getting closer to home, I was completely unimpressed by the uh, sonar thing from Lake Champlain that was trotted out as being proof of champ. I didn't see anything but potentially some mud volcanoes or possibly a couple of pieces of wood oh, laying on the of Lake Champlain. So I was unimpressed, but I've already gone on record with saying that. So. Wait, what, 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 what was the, the last one? What year was that? Last summer. Last summer, uh, and uh, what about the? Let's go back to the the Elizabeth Mugenthaler, the echolocation sounds. What about those? Now you had some involvement with that project, didn't you? Yeah, I actually co-authored an abstract in the Acoustical Society of America about that. We were supposed to do a follow-up paper, but Liz has gone MIA. I don't know where she is, and uh, oh. until. She pops up or passes away. I don't feel comfortable with going ahead and publishing the paper 
that we were working on. There is a draft version, but without her consent, I don't yes. feel going ahead with publish it. If anything ever happens to her, I probably will attempt to publish it because then I'll feel like, well, I'm the only one left who could publish it. Yeah. Up. yeah. So I'm I'm trying to respect her, but I think her sounds are still unexplained. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are a champ animal, but mm -hmm. they haven't been completely explained yet. They do bear some resemblance to the sounds that fish make when they pass gas. But uh -huh. there is an ultrasound element that shouldn't be there that is characteristic of cetacean high-frequency echolocation. So mm -hmm. as long as that element is present there, that seems to rule out it being a fish sound because fish do not make ultrasonic sounds. No. No, they do not. Now, and other sounds that have been recorded by other champ searchers, yes. I believe, are the sounds made by known fish. In uh -huh. fact, specifically, I believe they are the sounds of lake sturgeons making chirping sounds, which have been confused for being beluga. And the yeah. other sounds sound like a croaking frog. Their infrasound, which is low below the, the range of human hearing and those appear to be the sounds of a fish called the freshwater drum fish with mm -hmm. the scientific name of Plotonotus grunions. So if you're curious about those sounds, please go check them out. That's my opinion on that. So excellent. Excellent. Well I think we've <laughs> we've pretty much covered the board here. Now every time I speak to Scott I just feel like I learned so much about this this area. It's good to have somebody that's dedicated, you know, selflessly in many cases, so much of their time, not only well, to, to researching like monsters, but to, to sharing information about them with, with his colleagues as well. So I really thank you for that. Now, I know you've got a new expedition coming up to, to Lake Champlain soon. Just, yeah. um, I will put the link here, but just tell people who are listening, you know, where, where can they find you and where can they help and, and donate to your next expedition? Well, the... Um... The GoFundMe is called Lake Champlain Monster Hunt. You'll see a picture of me standing on the shore of Lake Champlain at Oak Ledge Park holding a spear with biopsy dart on the end of it. Uh -huh. That's my GoFundMe, and I, I really wish people would donate because I've still got to get plane tickets, and I need to get an underwater camera and some glow sticks as a lighting source for the underwater camera. But I did recently purchase a, uh, a raft that I'm going to be using for part of the uh, going out to explore places. So anybody wants to donate to that, please help. Um, I have several Facebook groups and pages. Uh, the primary one is uh, Lake Champlain Monster Champ Research by Scott Martis, William Jorginus. And then there's a larger group, which is more general, called the Zombie Plesiosaur Society, and then I also have another Facebook page called Lake Champlain Mystery Animals. So those are the, the three primary um, outlets for my information and where I share information. So I encourage you to go to those. I also have a book out, a, uh -huh. an e-book on Amazon called Night of the Living Dead Plesiosaurs. 
it's only available as an e-book, but I, I like it. I'm proud of it. So I encourage people, if you're more curious about the evidence for possible marine reptile survival beyond the KT event, please read that book. And I would suggest to anybody listening that, that you do read it. It's a very excellent book and donate if you can to, to Scott's uh, expedition. I I love your research and I you know, I love the chats that we have. And again, yes. say, I always learn so much from them. And it's, well, it's good to have somebody who's willing to share their resources, which is very unusual often in the research community. So that's that's wonderful too. I, so I would I'm suggest... I'm proud to be your friend and I thank you for... We always have good conversations and you're intelligent. You know what you're talking about. And thank you for having me on. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to stop it there. Um, how, how long do we go? 90 we minutes? Went, uh no, <laughs> yeah yeah 90 minutes all right that's cool. fantastic